Welcome, welcome, listeners. Please open your books to any and all pages. We're taking notes and making jokes for the rest of this episode. That's right, Scribes and Scribblers. You're back again with the Nib Section, official podcast of Fountain Pens Oceania. We've got a very special episode for you today. Before we get into what that is, I'd like to introduce our hosts for the day. We've got four hosts for you today. Uh, I'd like to welcome back our returning host, Tav. Hey, friends. Good to be back. The uh, ever ever bold uh, Iron Grouch as, as we go by. <laughs> Joining us again from the comfort of her living room, generous benefactor Sharon. Welcome, Sharon. Hi, everyone. We're partaking once again. If you've listened to our previous episode, uh, there are still remaining truffle, uh, truffle paraphernalia. It's new. It's new. not remaining. It's no. new. Uh-huh. <laughs> I went and restocked. We've, we've restocked. You can't expect truffle paraphernalia to hang around Sharon's that's apartment for two weeks. Actually, you, you guys polished me off of the truffle paraphernalia <laughs> last time. This is a new block from Tuscany. <laughs> Uh, that voice uh, as well chiming in is our fearless leader, Diana Dai. Welcome, Dai. Hi, Chuck. Uh, and as always, uh, I am Chuck Montano. Um, what we are writing with today, uh, let's go around the circle again. Tav, what have you uh, brought for us today? Okay, for, t- for today I've got a pen that was very graciously made custom for me by James Finnis out of, uh, I think he calls it blue lightsaber acrylic. And um, it's 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 a kind of a a blue glassy acrylic. Yeah, when when you pulled it out of the pouch, my it's it's the kind of finish that I normally expect from like a Franklin Kristoff. Yeah, I think it's I think it's the same sort of lot of acrylic. I think he ha- also had the green as well, and he offered the green. But I've already got a green one from Franklin Kristoff, and it's a eyedropper fill. He's put a double broad eighteen karat nib in there, and it's it's quite frankly one of my favorite pens I've ever used and I use it every day and it's inked with uh, Mont Blanc Iron Gall uh, Blue Black or Midnight Blue as they call it. Sharon, what are you, uh, what are you writing with today? Um, I'm writing with the last ever Mitsukoshi Special Edition Decimo in the red finish. So they came out with a pair of these that I picked up in Japan earlier this year. The Olympic Gymnastics pen. <clears throat> the Olympic Gymnastics Decimo, yep. It comes in a blue and a red-pink version. So, um, yeah, this particular pen comes in the Pilot Decimos, um, the Pilot Vanishing Points Fine Medium Nib. So the Fine Medium Nib is actually my favourite one out of the entire range. Um, they only do them on special edition pens. And, uh, yeah, it's great. Great pen to be writing with. Di, what about you today? I am writing with um, a new purchase, which I'm testing out as we speak. It's an Opus 88, one of the smaller like pocket-sized pens with a number five nib. It's called the Fantasia. If you look at photos of this, it's the pen that looks like a licorice all sort because it's got these vertical stripes of acrylic in different colours. This one's yellow, well, the body is yellow and the cap is mainly green with stripes of like orange, red blue and I think someone um, maybe it was Alistair on FPO affectionately called this the Doctor Who pen because it looks like the current Doctor Jodie Whittaker's her costume colors it's an eyedropper it's a Japanese eyedropper it's got a very short body and the cap screws onto the back of the body to make it a normal sized pen 
the nib is really well tuned for just a normal Yovo size five. It flows really well. It's very smooth with a little bit of heat feedback. Um, the feed keeps up. I like the finishing. It just it looks really great. Um, what I don't like is that you do have to screw to post the cap. And without screwing to post the cap at the back, it, it's just too short to write with. It is a with. little tiny pen. I really like the design of the acrylic on the cap here. Oh, it's, me too. <laughs> it's got like a, a colour texture to it. It's almost... It's like licorice all sorts. Yeah, yeah it, it looks, looks like organic. It's interesting it really as well organic. to see um, these acrylic pens with like layers rather than the like swirls and kind of uh, blocky chunks that, yeah. that yeah. we tend to see I like a lot that. of. Okay. Yeah, that's it's a it's a nice factor. Yeah, we've we've all seen the you know the cracked ice finish and all of that. Yeah, yeah. This is something new and, and it's great. Yeah, I mean, it. there's nothing wrong with the correct ice finishes, but when no. it's when it's predominantly what you see, it's nice to see something else. These were probably one of the older model Opus 88s, the ones when they first came out with the demonstrator with the size 6 ni- um, nib and then this range, the Fantasia and the Caloro. That was one of the first ranges of the Opus 88. The new ones that they're coming out with, I think, are much more aesthetically pleasing. Like you mean I the Omar? The Omar, yeah. But the Omar's very big. It's it's a different type of pen. It, it is a different type of pen, but it's probably similar, more similar to the Demonstrator, but with a few more curves to it. Whereas I found the Fantasia was just never my cup of tea because of the weird proportions, the length, the size of it, and I'm not a big fan of the size 5 nib. So if this pen was a little bit longer and not a pocket pen, I would be all over it. <laughs> I mean, I, I think it's a really nice pen anyway. I personally would probably use it if it came in a double broad, but, uh, you know, it doesn't. In uh, my, what am I writing with news? Uh, my renovations have come in. It is a Nakaya Chinkin Hosoge um, Long Piccolo from Aesthetic Bay, which uh, Sharon Grace uh, graciously put me in contact with. It is their um, exclusive model, the Long yeah, Piccolo. Yeah, the Long Piccolo is the Aesthetic Bay exclusive. Yeah. Just like the Naka Eye is the exclusive for classic fountain pens. Yeah. The normal Piccolo is a little too short for me. So I decided to go Long Piccolo, and it's it's wonderful. The, the texture on this is really great. I've been so happy with it. It is now far and away the most expensive pen that I have. What is the nib you have on this? Uh, it is an elastic uh, soft medium. So it has the cutouts. I have that same nib, not on the same pen, but I do have a pen that is almost identical to the one that you have. Yes, you have the snake roll stop. Yes, with the emerald eyes. Rather than the roll stop, I have a clip and it is, I requested Urushi coated to kind of uh, dull it down a bit and just have a, a little extra thing. Um, I'm really, really happy with it. That clip... I prefer to any roll stop. I think it looks really smart. Yeah. I, the thing about roll stops for me is I don't have a desk uh, at, at my job. So I don't, uh, I don't really have a post that I can leave things at. So everything always goes in my pocket. And a roll stop is less viable for me than someone who has a uh, more uh, stationary job. Yeah. yeah. I like the feeling of uh, Arushi under the fingertips specifically when, when I'm writing. It's like, you know, when uh, people always talk about celluloid, when you pick up a celluloid pen, it's like always warm. Yeah, it is. Yeah, for me, the Arushi like texture, the grippiness of it, I really like that. And it's really interesting because I have that exact same pen, but with a snake stopper. The two are miles apart and it's only one feature that's different. Yeah, and it, it sets the whole thing apart. Yep. Yeah. It's like a, a bow tie and a, and a skinny tie. 
more like a cravat and a skinny okay. tie. Okay. Yeah, I, was, I, I think that's a better. That's a better I was going to describe yeah. it as like a fur boa. <laughs> <laughs> yes, fur boa. That that may be yeah. more appropriate. Um, this is our second anniversary uh, episode. We're, we're doing. Yeah, congrats, us. Congrats uh, to us. Woo! Thanks everyone for sticking with yeah. us for two years. It's it's been a ride. Um, and last year for our anniversary, we did a Q and A episode. So it's just so that you know to give us a break, so we don't have to plan anything. Although it ends up being self-defeating because we do actually end up having to prepare answers to the questions. Correct, correct. We just don't have to think of the questions. This, um. that, is, that is true. And in true form, we are going into this episode uh, very what's – the, what's a nice word for sloshed? <laughs> <laughs> inebriated? No, we no, are well, nice. on so. we well on the way to being inebriated. We are well on our way. Well hydrated. Well, we're already halfway into a bottle of – Almost Bella done Park. with a bottle of – Champagne. So seriously, if we should actually do a tally of how many bottles of wine we have consumed throughout the, our recording history. That can be your job, Sharon. Um, I will go check the receipts. So for our anniversary episodes, we tend to take a lot of questions that aren't necessarily pen and paper related. And we just take general ones across the board and we've compiled a whole bunch uh, from the listeners uh, that we really appreciate uh, us reach uh, reaching out to us rather and we are going to get through those for the rest of the episode to answer all of them we're going to go through the straightforward ones pretty quickly but some i think require a bit of a story so we might spend more time on some of the questions yeah let's let's start with you Di, since this first one is for you I'll ask the question. Sure. Uh, the first set of questions is about inks. This one comes to us uh, from Laura at Ink P. Do you know a dupe of Sailor slash Kobe Nagasawa Aegean Sea? One of the best blue inks of all time. I love this ink. I have four bottles you're of a, it. You're a connoisseur. Of wow, you really planned I ahead. I hoarded. It's a limited edition ink. It's definitely a limited edition. So Nagasawa Stationery Store makes inks with Sailor. There is their normal range, Kobe inks, which are not limited edition. And then they make limited editions, which sometimes are themed around, I think, like museum exhibitions. And this one is one of those ones. It's a fairly light, but still very legible cerulean sky blue. It doesn't have very strong sheen, but um, I think it has a little bit. The closest uh, matches that I could find were out of Sailor, and they would be, I think, out of their normally available range, pretty close to Sailor Sky High, which I think has been brought back in the last few years which means it's also similar to Sailor Sutin or Sautin or however you pronounce it. Um, out of the Kobe range, it's very close to Kobe 17 and Kobe 66. They're both sort of light to middling cobalt blues. If you can't have access to Sailor, it's also, I think, a good enough dupe for Edelstein Topaz. And I think Tav was saying this morning that he thinks... That's a pretty close colour as well. I haven't got a bottle of Topaz myself, but I think it looks quite similar from what I remember of it. No. No, it's, it's not? not? It's not. So on paper, it looks quite similar, but the inks themselves perform drastically oh, differently. Oh, I, I would believe oh, okay. that, yeah. yeah. But I'm just thinking a colour dupe. But, but even a yeah. colour dupe, so Topaz is a little bit lighter. And just on this one, if you ever do get a bottle of it, you need two bottles because they stack up to actually form a picture. Oh, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. I've only got one oh, bottle. That so cute. No. That's why I have four bottles. <laughs> ah, <laughs> so you yeah. have two mm. pictures. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there you go. We'll, we'll go back to back on die. Uh, this question also from Laura at Ink P. 
what would uh, this this one escapes me so you you might have to provide context there but uh what would be a good ink to transcribe flint's speech you know which one with <laughs> okay so so laura you will have heard her on the podcast before. She's a friend of mine who I interviewed in the episode about writing therapy. And we have exchanges on Twitter. And this question leads out of an exchange where I was posting in response to someone. And I'm going to just I'm just going to read their tweet. And it's to do with Alan Turing. Um, the tweet is from at John Bradfield. And he writes on the Queen of England's pardoning of Alan Turing. He says, I'm torn on the pardon thing. If it's forgiveness for doing something wrong, then a pardon is nonsensical. If it's for breaking the law, which he did, but the law was wrong, then maybe it makes sense. But really, it should have been a royal fucking really sorry, not a pardon. Um, you guys know who Alan Turing is, right? Yes. <laughs> British mathematician was instrumental in solving the Enigma Code and therefore the winning of World War II by the Allies. Yep. He was, um, I think, charged with gross indecency for committing homosexual acts yep. in the 50s, chemically castrated yes. and then committed suicide, um, presumed suicide. And he was given a royal pardon by the Queen in 2014, I believe. But wow. he was never properly... Well, the, like the Crown never properly apologised for what they did to all the men who, you know, were prosecuted and labelled criminals for just being gay. Um, and this is what I was responding to in another tweet, which said, um, yeah, this is Alan Turing, but also James fucking Flint. And I tagged Laura in my tweet. So... This is getting very long-winded, but let's just say the speech that Laura is talking about is a speech from the show Black Sails. Which you've mentioned. We've mentioned before. I it's, love it. Um, we love that show. It's so much fun, but you have to know that the main character is a pirate who is living in exile in, I think, the, the West Indies or in the Bahamas after being exiled for being in a... Uh, I don't know what you call it, uh, an affair with a nobleman. And he talks to his friend and confidant, Miranda, about the impossibility of him accepting a pardon from the Crown because to accept a pardon for committing that crime would be to admit that he accepts the label of being a monster, which is what they were calling him. So he would rather live in exile and on the outskirts of society then admit that he did something wrong, um, to admit that charge. Instead, he wants them, meaning the crown and the law, to apologise. And that stubbornness and that defiance is just so James Flint and it's so Black Sails. It's fantastic. And that's why I love that oh. show. <laughs> so that's the background um, for Laura's question. And so when I was thinking about an ink for transcribing James Flint's speech about how he cannot accept a pardon and what he wants is their apology. Um, I thought about bisexual colours, so I was thinking purples, and I was also thinking of revolutionary colours um, because James Flint is a revolutionary. And so I decided on purple because purple is also the colour that you get from blending blue and red, and blue and red are classical revolutionary colours. They're also the two colours that are on the Haitian flag, and the Haitian revolution is also, um, I think, spiritually and philosophically related to black sails. So 
I think any like royal, very flamboyant purple would be perfect. But specifically for this, I picked Diamine Iridescent Robert, which is a very, very high sheening purple. It's like a very deep magenta with a greenish gold sheen. And so that would be the colour that I would use to transcribe this uh, queer revolutionary tract from wow. James Flint. I love it. I was going to say something like... Um, Sorry for the rambling answer. No, oh, no, no. Yeah, oh, I was just, I'm, I'm thinking along the same lines, but I, I, uh, I think um, there's a Robert Oster ink that's, uh, I think it's called Hippo Purple or something like that. It's, it's purple, but it's also got this kind of uh, tanned leather sort of appearance to it. It's a brownish purple. I haven't used a lot of that ink, but it reminds me of Black Sails. Something about the brown and the purple of it. Okay, uh, the next question is directed at all of us. And um, it was asked by both Laura and Sue Nell, or Sue. And they asked, what is your Desert Island ink or what is your favorite ink of all? Desert Island is a weird one because it's either like, what would you like to have every day or what is your favorite? And the two of them are not necessarily yeah, the same thing. Yeah, that's true. Uh, last night I ate at uh, Gumshara, which is one of my favorite ramen places in Sydney. Uh, love it. Love the place. I was also reminded of why I cannot eat there every day. So I would, I think, have to pick, uh, this may, may not be my favorite ink of all, but my Desert Island ink, the one that I would like using every day and not have an issue with at all, is the one that is in my Nakaya right now, and it is Hiroshizuku Tsukio. It is a returning favorite for me. Tav? I have been thinking about this for weeks, and honestly, it is so damn hard. It's a, it's a recent realization but I really like Pelican Blue Black. Yeah. It's such a nice color. For me, I, I normally love vibrant, flamboyant, colorful inks, but this one's just really nice. It's subtle, it's water resistant, it's good in, you know, in vintage pens as well. I, I mean, that, that would probably be my sort of go-to nice everyday ink, like you were saying, but, my, but color-wise, my favorite color of ink is the dreaded Bay State blue. It's just, it's horror. It's such a horrible ink, you know, to, to deal with, but oh my gosh, that on paper. neon, it's like neon blue. The on yeah. paper. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's eye searing and I love it. Yeah. So at current, so we have one very dark, almost black blue and we have another blue black. Uh, Sharon? <laughs> Not going to get any better over here. <laughs> oh, um, no. So my desert island, my desert island ink is Iroshizuku Asagao. I've been using it for the last two years, every single day. Still haven't gotten tired of it. Um, it doesn't bug me in that it's very pleasant to look at for long periods of time. I have notebooks upon notebooks filled with this stuff. So that'd be my Desert Island ink. But my favourite ink is a little bit harder. I really enjoy lighter coloured inks, the ones with a lot of shading and really interesting halos. So it'd probably be something in the family of like Sailor Fuji Musume, which is their really light purple. Um, something in that family. Probably not that one exactly. That would be my favourite ink of all time. And I? My favourite ink, maybe it's just because it's so difficult to get these days, but I'm going to say Karandash Amazon. Just get the Caveco green, palm green. I no, knew, I knew it's it was, so dry. I knew it was going to be a Karandash. I knew it was going to be a Karandash. I just didn't know whether you were going to say saffron or Amazon. The colour is very close. The Caveco palm green, the colour is pretty close, but it's quite dry compared to Amazon. I just doesn't have the same oomph. So that's my favourite ink. My Desert Island ink would probably be um, a 
dark blue. I like Tokyo. I like Diamond Twilight. Yeah. Um, I also, right now, I really love Karandash Magnetic Blue. Sure. It's kind of a dusky blue-black with really great shading. Absolutely barely any sheen that I, I can see. I almost got a bottle last week. Oh, it's, very, it's so very expensive, but very yeah, nice. Yeah. yeah. So a lot of blues. <laughs> yeah, blue blacks, blues. Yeah, I, I, I agree with Yasagawa, actually. That, that's a really lovely ink yeah. as well. Yeah, like when it comes to Desert Island, if you're talking everyday usage, it's like, you know when people ask you what meal would you like to have for the rest of your life? I never give anything interesting because I'm like, it Soup has noodles. to be. Yeah, I, my, <laughs> mine, is, mine is white rice like because I will have that and it will be fine. Some type of soup noodle. Yeah, it'll be fine. And I won't ever like because if I pick my favorite food, I'll hate it. Yeah. Anyone that's ordered too much fried chicken knows that. Oh my gosh, yes, yeah. absolutely. I'm so glad I don't like fried chicken then. Yeah, there you mm. go. Well, get out of this house. <laughs> I'm sorry. Sharon just ate fried chicken. <laughs> Okay, let me pitch this one. This one's from Alex. Describe the ink you would make if you could have free reign in any company's ink lab. Uh, Tav's put his hand up to answer this one first. I have, I have. So I would move heaven and earth to make an ink that mirrors base state blue, but doesn't have (laughs) that radioactive sort of hazard that comes along with it. I know there are other sort of ones people go, oh, this is kind of close. This is kind of close, but it's not the same. It's not got that, that... luminous eye searing quality to it either that or i would i would um hold the uh the 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 powers that be at parker to ransom until they re-released the penman series of inks because they were amazing and without compare they were i think in the 90s and they came in these really interesting sort of like a flask yeah like these flask like bottles and they were extremely saturated they were really they were almost like diamine inks and very very alkaline so we're known to. Oh, uh, I burn thought that was things. the. I thought that was the. I um, know uh, it was Penman, Penman oh, Sapphire, all of really? those. They were very alkaline, were which was why they were uh, discontinued. I thought that was the um, the Parker Fifty One inks. They were very alkaline as well. They had a pH of about eleven. Do not sip. <laughs> no sippy. Um, but I, I thought I thought one of the reasons also not. I don't know about the alkaline thing, but also the um, the fact is they were a bit cloggy too because they were very saturated. Yep. Okay, um, I'm going to direct this next question at Chuck. Why isn't there a nib section Robert Oster ink? And what is a good golden yellow ink? And this is from Anissa, Hot Cup of Loving on uh, Slack. So I can answer the second one very quickly. P.W. Ackerman, Hello Ocker van France. Is that, is that how you said it last hey, time? He got it. There we go. <laughs> he uh, got it. I, I mean, it, it sounds... Uh, He's been identi- practicing, guys. It sounds identical in my ear to the last time I said it. Uh, but uh, the end, uh, Mont Blanc, Golden Yellow... Uh, the, these are two, I think, standards because you cannot get Carandash Saffron. Carandash Saffron is also quite orange. Yes, uh, it is towards the, the end that I like, but uh, yeah, definitely ed- edges into orange. Why isn't there a nib section, Robert Oster Inc.? I don't know. I don't handle collabs. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know because I haven't gone We've never asked. We've, well, never, well, we've also never asked. We've never asked. And it's so I think. I've been thinking a lot about this podcast in general and, you know, how we're two years in, we haven't done any collabs, we haven't taken sponsorships. No merch. No no merch as of yet. As of yet, but um, it's been a self-funded, very much self-funded labour of love for all of us and we haven't uh, reached out to collaborate with any makers. Maybe it's something that we can look into for year three, but... You know, we love pens and 
that's predominantly the purpose of this podcast. Yeah, I think especially because at the very beginning um, it started out as a, well, it still is an FPO thing. We were trying to focus on being a good podcast and um, doing things that the community would be interested in listening to. So as we grow into it, it's definitely something we can explore. I feel like we could could release a a nib section themed bunch of champagne glasses considering the amount that we consume. Oh, good champagne know. glasses are yeah. very expensive. Yeah, they're very expensive. Oh, well, just put it put it on a GoFundMe. Maybe put shot it the maximum, glasses. The maximum level. Yeah, okay, shot glasses, fine. <laughs> you can call them that. Yeah. I reckon I reckon a tote bag would be really good, uh, uh, like a screen-printed tote bag. That, that's that's just, pretty well. Just one glass turned from uh, Franklin Christoph Italian ice. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, it's just one oh no. <laughs> <laughs> Limited edition, $5,000. Uh, next question. Why do waterproof or document inks run so wet slash wide? Noodlers and Diatramentis both make my nibs a full size wider or more. Would like to keep one pen loaded with the permanent ink, but don't go through that much. So I've hesitated on iron gore or micro pigment inks for that reason. And the question's from Gillian. Maybe Tav would want to answer this. I would love to. So firstly, I'll say that not all waterproof and uh, document inks run wet. Pelican Blue Black, Mont Blanc Iron Gall Midnight Blue, um, other Iron Gall inks, as well as uh, the Mont Blanc Permanent Blue, which is a pigment ink. A pigment meaning that's got little tiny particles suspended in it, so small that the actual motion of the water in the ink can keep them suspended rather than them settling down. Those A lot of, a lot of ones like the Diatramentus and Noodlers, they have a lot of surfactant in them, so it makes them flow a lot wetter, and that prevents any particles from getting stuck. It's just like... Yeah, it's, it's almost sort of washes them out as they go so they don't clog. That's one of the reasons, just so that it doesn't clog the pen up because they're a very saturated ink. For example, um, Mont Blanc Permanent Blue, that can be a bit cloggy because it is not very wet at all. It's actually probably the driest ink I know. Um, so these surfactants, these wetting agents, and they also, they also cause it to soak into the paper and they also cause it to spread on the paper, which means that it will make your nib run a bit wider because it will it'll blot onto the paper a little bit more. If, if you'd like a document ink that's dye-based, so it, it's just got dissolved chemicals, not particles, and that's not iron gall, the Graphon Faber-Castell inks are all permanent, so they're light fast. They are not waterproof, but they hold up pretty well to water. They will leave at least a, an indelible residue if you rinse them out. So, yeah, th- those are the ones. Or, or I would say feel free to try iron gall inks. They're a bit, they're a bit dry, um, unless you, you're a big fan of them. I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan of those. Um, the internet will tell you that, you know, pigmented inks and iron gall inks are the devil. I wouldn't use them in a really nice pen that you couldn't take apart, uh, just to clean in case there's a little bit of a blockage. But, you know, if you, if you rinse your pen out every time you fill it, or even if you don't, something like Pelican Blue Black, I've known people that have used that exact same formula ink since the 80s in the same pen without rinsing it once. A well-formulated iron gall ink, modern iron gall ink, shouldn't form much precipitate in the pen and, and gunk it up. So, yeah, but if you're really worried, try Graphon Faber-Castell. They're, they're all light fast and document proof. So, um, This next one is from Melissa. Um, is this the Melissa? Is this pod Melissa? This is Melissa Graf Melissa. Yep. Okay. Uh, so from Melissa, she said, ooh, a celebration. How about some festive pen and ink and drink combinations? <laughs> what pairings would the team sit down with for the perfect atmosphere and mood to write poems and cards and ransom demands? First of all, if I'm writing any ransom demands, I'm staying well away from yellow so people don't know it's me. 
Yeah, and I'll, I'll yeah, use an extra fine, like, oh, uh, extra fine flex nib yeah, for me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Aurora black, <laughs> Aurora black somewhere. Yeah. So for writing ransom notes, I would use Kimokusai, yeah, Sailor yeah. Kimokusai, <laughs> and pretend it came from Chuck. I'll use I'll use Asagawa then. <laughs> um, I I like the uh, ink and drink combinations. Um, I th- I feel like the two of you have maybe given this a little more thought. I'll let Sharon uh, start this one off. So for an ink and drink, so ink would be something ye old reliable. Um, I would expect it something in the Iroshizuku range, which is just, you know, old faithful, but you know it's going to work. Um, also quite pleasant to use, heavy bottles, um, you know, very nice blown glass bottles. Um, and the drink has to be bubbly, has to be bubbly. Um And the podcast now probably knows that I have a bubbles problem where I consume champagne like there is no tomorrow. We're just helping you clear up your, you know, living space so you don't have boxes. Do you notice that there are no more boxes of champagne in my living room? We're we're drinking it so that it's not just you drinking it, Sharon. We're performing that service for you. (laughs) Yes, you're drinking a $260 bottle of champagne. Yeah, I know. The sacrifice is that we make. It's really hard for me, Sharon. It's drinking. It's difficult. And you know what? I'm glad. that you've acknowledged it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you're welcome. You are welcome. Um, but in all honesty, it probably would be a champagne. It'll be a champagne or something. I mean, you know, the older the vintage, the better. And something that um, in terms of the ink portion of it, I would actually pick like a yellow or an orange ink because I just find them quite festive. Um, I remember when, and this is showing my age a bit, but I remember when Delta did their tw- 20th anniversary ink which I actually gave you Chuck did. a bottle you of did. that was a golden yellow ink it was a golden yellow cele- celebration anniversary ink and so many anniversary inks maybe that's the only one that I can think of but a lot of festivities I always associate with like a gold or an orange um, like a brighter color and it's not something that I would normally write with so I think it works quite well for ransom notes as well what about what about you Tev well I don't know about ransom notes I'd probably as I said, that's, I'd probably use an extra that's, fine, that's, that's extra a good, fine that's a good flex thing nib. to say on air, by the way. Extra that's fine a... flex nib with 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 you know I don't know what 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 ink do I do I not like I don't whatever it is it wouldn't be iron gall that's for sure but um, for just to sit down I'm imagining me sitting down in front of a fire um, on a cold night because winter and inking up actually this um, probably either my Franklin Christoph or my James Finnis the the two tinted demonstrators that I have so the the blue glass looking one and the green glass looking ones. They remind me of a, a glass of something, so like a thick glass of whiskey, one of those really heavy whiskey glasses. Sure, sure. And I probably ink it with Delta Brown, actually. It's a really classy, nice brown that just sort of, it could be a chocolatey brown or it could be some kind of spirit. I wouldn't say whiskey, but it could be some kind of spirit as well, some really heavily aged, uh, maybe a really heavily aged bourbon or something like that, or an Irish coffee. That That would also match, I feel like. So, yeah, that, that would be my sort of sit down and relax celebration ink. But if I'm going to get white girl wasted, definitely my uh, Visconti green celluloid Wall Street with diamine apple glory. That is sort of the, the Bay State blue, but bright lime green instead. It's like, ugh. and that would be with an apple teeny. With an apple teeny? Yeah. Like I said, white girl wasted. Okay, sure. Hey, I'm, I'm secure enough that I'd enjoy a good <laughs> apple teeny. I've never had That's an me. apple teeny. No. <laughs> Getting the cocktail shaker out next time. Okay. All right. So here's here's my scenario. I've got 
a clear custom 823. Uh, it's full of Caran Dash saffron. I'm drinking a Lagavulin 16, and I am watching either Space Jam or Coming to America. Uh, that's that's my that's my perfect atmosphere for virtually anything. That could be a birthday for me, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and for a ransom note, uh, I, I don't know. For a ransom note, I'm writing with. Your uh, writing's too distinctive. You need to for, print. For a ransom note, I'm writing architect with a pilot parallel, and I'm using. Uh, I'm using Jayoban uh, Emerald Dushavor. Uh, because I have, I don't have a bottle. I have never had a bottle. This is also with the parallel. I could probably effectively do some really crazy, like very, very seven esque kind of stuff, complete with uh, letters cut out from a magazine uh, and die. Uh, mold wine. <laughs> as a celebratory drink but only when I'm by myself because if I, if it's in company then you're probably drinking like a rosé or a bubbly and to write something special this is actually an ink that I've used previously to write um, Christmas cards and it's Okuyama this takes us to our fountain pens questions this one again is from uh, Laura at Ink P this says why do auroras break at this one spot in particular okay Laura has a Aurora Optima and recently on Twitter she showed a photo of her Aurora Optima tragically snapped in half and I replied by saying I have an Aurora Optima demo which broke in the exact same spot about four years ago here it is it's a demonstrator with rhodium trim um, it broke in half like right, whoa! Right above the ink window, <laughs> and Ouch. it's clean. <laughs> yeah, it, it broke. You can see like the part Ouch. there. Wow! Like, can you take take this ring? Yeah. Um, what happened was I bought this from a a pen shop that will not be named in Sydney. I sent it. <laughs> that really that, that doesn't narrow it down at all, though. <laughs> I sent it. I took it back to the store. I said I was using this normally. I'd only had the pen for a, like less than two months um he's he asked me were you using this properly and i'm like yeah i have like 40 pens um and so he sent it to be repaired apparently it couldn't be repaired and so they sent me a brand new pen and the brand new pen which was the exact same pen broke in the exact same spot not a month later so my assumption is that this is a common weakness in the aurora optimal models particularly the demonstrators I think it's something to do just the way with the way it's designed. It must be a point just of stress in the body, in the neck of the pen where you hold it and it's just above the ink window where there's this little metal, like a washer thing. I um, imagine up to the ink window is one section yep. that, and then, they've, that they've sealed um, or, you know, plastic welded to another. Yeah, but it's not like the glue came apart it's like yeah, it yeah. actually snapped yeah. in that part i had a conversation with uh, leo about this and he said yeah that's what happens with aurora optimus apparently ah. um it's <laughs> so they're obviously known for this and leo suggested and he says this is what he does with his optimus with the auraloid and the demonstrator ones he says you should probably not store it in something where um, sliding it in and out of a case requires you to put stress on the body. So um, he suggests a pen tube instead of a pen case. Mm -hmm. Because even 
when I move that in and out of the elastic loops of, say, um, a leather pen case, you know, I have to sort of lift it up a little bit to clear the edges and the zips of the case. And that, I think, is sufficient stress to possibly cause it to fracture over time. And the Optimas are chunky boys. They're, they're, they're quite wide. They're, they're wide. Diameter. Yeah, so, yeah, it's it's a shame. Just looking at it, it, it does look like it's it's just a weak spot in the way the pen has been designed. I, I don't baby my, my possessions, but I think if something like this happens twice um, in the same spot, it's not just you, Sarah. It's something wrong with the pen. And this is for a recent one that she got. Um, so Laura's pen was... I think she's had it for a year or two. Oh, which which model I meant? Oh, hers I think was um was like a brown or a Lloyd limited edition, maybe one of the three five sixes, three six five, three six fives, yeah. Um, the cappuccino or something like that. Oh, the recent one, maybe not the, not the tortoise brown from like not the old tortoise brown, like a recent like it's a coffee coloured yeah. or a Lloyd. Yeah, it looks like the plastic kind of narrows down into the section, and it's not as reinforced as the rest of the pen, so it's like kind of got like a waist to it almost like and yeah it's just it's just a thin spot on the pen and well it's very, very sad weak, weak point yeah it's very a, sad design flaw really i was thinking i would like i'd probably take the nib it's a medium nib just take it out of the pen just put it on my pen bbs <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, aren't you going to get that repaired again i mean it is it is a manufacturing i don't know if i could find the receipt and i did buy it from pen store that will not be named okay in the yeah. city Duly noted, duly noted, but surely that can be, anyway. Uh, so this is one extra plug for my preferred pen storage solution, which is a pen wrap or a pen box where you don't have to slide it in and out of elastic. Yeah, yeah. it is definitely more noticeable with something like the Optima, which in which diameter means you often fit snugly into things. Uh, our next question, uh, also from Laura uh, at Ink P. If you had to pair pens with perfumes, what would you, Diana, match your Hannibal pen with? Uh, and, and others. Uh, when, when this showed up, uh, I, I lamented that I was not being consulted for uh, fragrance. <laughs> Fragrant questions? Yeah, yeah but uh, here we are. So you've seen photos of my Hannibal pen before. It's not an official Hannibal Lecter pen. It's my Estee DuPont Olympio Vertigo in the extra large size. It's this gold plated pen with Chinese lacquer in a red and gold tartan pattern. I don't know why I called it my Hannibal pen, but I just associate like very ostentatious tartan and check with Hannibal Lecter on the TV show. So I actually put a lot of thought into this. Instead of matching my perfume suggestion with the pen precisely because it's just like a tartan French, you know, fountain pen. I matched it with the character um, Hannibal Lecter, specifically as played by Mars Mikkelsen in the TV show. So Hannibal Lecter has a very, very well-trained nose, very acute senses. He obviously knows a lot about perfumes given the amount of times that Robert Harris has mentioned perfumes in the books. Most, I think, famously when he, he identifies Clarice Starling's perfume just from standing next to her, um, which was, by the way, Nina Ritchie's Le de Domp. He also comments on Will Graham's perfume by saying it's something that has a ship on the bottle. And would you believe this, but in perfume and Hannibal Lecter circles, it's actually a 
often discussed question, what perfume would Hannibal Lecter wear? I think the most reasonable response would be he wouldn't wear anything because he's a a stalk predator and he wouldn't want his presence to be like given away by any sort of noticeable smell. Yeah. So most of the time, I think he would wear nothing. But in normal social circles, like if he was going to the opera, if he was having a dinner party, I associate him with something that is not traditionally masculine. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't put him in a scent that's very heavily leather or um, tobacco or those cool aquatic scents, which are very, which were very much in vogue in the 90s and 2000s. I would put him in a, like a woody chypre or a masculine floral. So some suggestions would be, okay, in the chypre range, um, maybe Caron Yatagan or Estee Lauder's Aromatic Elixir. These two perfumes are actually very similar, but one's for men, one's for women. In the masculine floral section, maybe... Aids Divinustus Pelagonium. It's a geranium scent, either that or Givenchy's Incense. And the third category that I would also associate with him would be Incense. Incense because of its um, connection with both um, religiosity, so the sort of cathedrals and the Florentine churches that he likes to visit, but also with Japanese culture, so Shinto shrines. Two that I really like, one is Kyoto by Comte de Gasson. It's inspired by Buddhist and Shinto Japanese shrines. And the other is Mortel from Trudon, which is like a French version of that same sort of scent. So frankincense, myrrh, incense, those sorts of smells. Nothing too foody, nothing too overtly masculine. He's a perfume lover. You know he's a perfume lover. He knew about jar bolt of lightning come on guys anyone who knows what perfume is knows what i'm talking about when i say that and laura will probably know that as well there you go what have we got next uh this is from david now uh online fountain pen purchase decisions uh what is your most inspired bargain purchase and the what was i thinking purchase i i think uh sharon and tav have both put up their hands for this one tav would you like to go first sure Okay, so my biggest bargain was I saw a ST Dupont tortoiseshell, Olympio XL. I believe we covered this very early in the yeah, podcast. Yeah, I will always be very proud of this purchase because I was inspired to buy it. It was, it was a, good, a good price. I was very happy with having bought it and then it arrived and it was in pieces. It had just fallen apart. Um, all the, the glued parts had just fallen apart somehow in shipping. So I sent a message to the seller and they weren't having any of it. They said, oh, look, if you've broken the pen, we're not going to do anything. I went, look, honestly, I, I, haven't, I haven't broken it. It arrived broken. So um, I contacted eBay and eBay tried to contact the seller and they stopped responding. And um, so eBay just went, okay, well, you will receive a full refund. And I said, do I need to send the pen back to them? And they said, well, we've asked them to provide a return address and they didn't. So you, you can keep it. And I went, oh, okay. So here is this Olympio XL in pieces that I essentially got for free now. And well, all it took was a bit of Aral diet and uh, yeah, just epoxy. And it, and I assume that's what they used to glue it anyway, because that's what looked like there was a bit of epoxy residue on the parts that had fallen off. And it, it's fine. So clearly they just didn't put enough epoxy at the factory. Yeah. And so I got a free Olympio XL. Um, my what was I thinking purchase is probably a lot of the really really beat up antique pens that i've bought online i'm just like oh i can fix that no i couldn't (laughs) 
Sometimes I'm like, oh, maybe I could use the nib for something else. I couldn't. Or sometimes like, oh, yeah, it'll still work. No, it won't. Um, or maybe I could find a cap for it. No, I didn't. So uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, what was I thinking? Like, why didn't I just get one that was in slightly better condition? Oh, probably because it was $200 more. Yep. Simple. Sharon, floor is yours. Oh, so in terms of most inspired bargain purchase. So back when, back before buying on Facebook fountain pen groups was a thing or on Reddit and so on and so forth, I used to browse the fountain pen network uh, sales listings quite religiously and sometimes you just had to be on there 24 7 to catch a good deal and one day I remember I caught it was right around the GFC and I caught this deal where someone was selling out of basically all of their what was it all their collection greater than a certain dollar amount and I ended up buying I believe it was three Montblancs and two Nakayas for less than 500 USD. I hate you. I hate you. And it was literally, it got posted. I saw it get posted. I messaged it. I said, it's mine. I don't even care about anything else. You can charge me 300 bucks for shipping and I'll still take it. Let Um, let me me ask you... uh, did you have to use any epoxy to put any of these together? I did not. Oh, oh, but see, Strangely that enough. Cheaper, <laughs> Strangely enough, I didn't have to use any epoxy. But um, yeah, it came to me. I got this whole set. It was the first time I'd ever bought like a bulk lot of pens. And I think it was about eight pens that actually came in this lot for less than 500 USD. Um, and for me at the time, I just thought that was one of the best bargain, bargain buys that I had. And it was just as I was getting into Nakayas. To, so to all of a sudden get two, in one lot was just absolute windfall gain. And so I don't think you can get um, deals like that anymore. But then having said that, I've also done one of the most stupidest sales on the Fountain Pen Network sales board where I once sold an M800 for $185. What's, what's that? What is wrong? <laughs> Are you okay, Sharon? <laughs> yeah, I, so um, and, and the story behind this uh, was that the Pilot Iroshizuku inks had just come out and I was very, very new to um, collecting inks. And the first round of Pilot Iroshizuku inks were like this big thing. You actually had to pre-order for them. And this was back when, um, what's his name? The guy who now runs Wancha, <laughs> Wancha Pens. So back then he, what was it? Taizo. Taizo. The store that he ran was Engaika. Engaika was the only place where you could get it that would ship overseas. And so I pre-ordered all of the Iroshizuku inks, but Taizo would only ever take PayPal balance transfers. He would not take credit cards because of fees or something. And so at the time I needed to make a payment for my Iroshizuku inks and there were 180. 85 USD that I was short. So I sold an M800 for immediate payment of 185 and <laughs> made how, that sale. How long did that listing last? Oh, a couple of seconds. Um, and then it was pretty funny because about two or three weeks later, someone else went on the boards and posted a want to buy M800. And they said, oh, looking at recent sales, I'll offer you 180 bucks. I'll offer someone 180 bucks for an M800. And people were like, lol, you must be dreaming. And he goes, no, nah, I saw someone sell one. And I had to actually respond. I'll be like, I'm 
I'm just going to fess up. That was me. It was a very unique situation. I um, was desperate. And until Iroshizuka releases another set of inks, I'm not going to be that desperate to sell an Amat 100 for 185 bucks. Next season, they released another I was gonna, <laughs> so So hang on. If, if there's ever a new Iroshizuka ink, like, you know, release, I should just kind of... You should just hit work. you up, just slide into your DMs. <laughs> like, hey, how you doing? Got any nice pens? Anyway. <laughs> and then just on the second part of this, uh, the what was I thinking purchase? I have I have a couple. You're, you're deep in this uh, what I'm, was I thinking purchase. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah, very, very deep. So most recently was a Panida, which I've now reviewed and we've covered. Um, I'm now at the stage where I would like to stop dating and I don't want to go steady with it. So this is my reporting back. Um, still love the nib and the pen. It's just, you know, look look better in the profile photos. When I swiped right, it must have looked more Isn't attractive. Isn't that a story I'm uh, familiar with? Um, and so I'm ready to ghost it right about now, but it's unfortunate <laughs> because it's proving really hard to ghost. Uh, it just keeps coming back for more. So that was one. My second one is pretty much every Visconti that I've ever bought. <laughs> <laughs> I have a soft spot for Italians. I just don't know what it is. And I've been I've been torn to bits by Italians, what Italian you, pens. What you know is... <laughs> I'll leave that one. Uh, what you know is that you can go on roughly three dates with with Italian pens before there are no. uh, before there are repercussions. But like I, I have this love hate with Italian uh, Italian pens, and like you know, some of the most beautiful pens I've ever held in my hand have been Italian pens, and the pens that I can never ever commit to for a long term relationship have also been Italian pens because they just keep disappointing me. They never live up to the hype. It's all flash, no substance. Uh, so watch this space. My auroras will probably go up for sale soon. <laughs> so uh, this next one is from Trent. Uh, do you have any pens or inks that are special to you for some reason that to any other FP user might be fairly ordinary? Uh, Tav, you've put your, your hand up to answer this one. Oh, it would definitely be my first two fountain pens. Um, it was just a Parker Vector that was that had my name engraved. That was given to me by, by my mum, I think, when I was 16. And there was another one that was that so that, that didn't even kickstart my love of fountain pens. I just kind of used it as any other pen. Um, but I was given a set of a Waterman Expert ballpoint and fountain pen, and that was what kickstarted my love of fountain pens. Uh, they were given to me by, by my grandparents on my 18th, and um, I dropped one of them. I dropped the, the fountain pen at uni, and it bent the nib. And I went into a pen shop to have it repaired, and they replaced the nib. And I just kind of thought, oh, it's a bit of an expensive pen to keep carrying around with me every day. Uh, ironically, I now carry pens that are far more expensive than that every day. But at the time, you know, and I went, oh, I should probably get a, a cheaper one. Hey, and then I thought, oh, well, I haven't got anything to keep it in. So I should buy a pen pouch. And I bought a three pen pouch. No, a four pen. It was a four pen. Yeah. And then I went, oh, the other three slots look so empty. <laughs> and here we are. This next one is from Trent and Inharmonic. Do you have pens or nibs that you swore you didn't like, wouldn't ever own, but now you quite like? Um, and also, what pen model did you initially dislike, but have come around on? Sharon, Whoa, hand I have up. one here, and I think I've mentioned this in a past episode, but um, Sailors, as a brand, 
I hated them. Was not a fan. Mainly the Sailor 1911, the Prophet range. Always thought it was a Mont Blanc ripoff. Always thought, why would anyone get a Sailor when you can get a Mont Blanc? Look where I am now. <laughs> Flush with Sailors. My one is very early on. I was drawn in by the mystique of the Visconti uh, homeboy sapiens, <laughs> I, I, I call it. Uh, but the, um, the lava resin... Uh, situation and it's particularly if you uh, if you're not partial to buying um art pieces and if you're looking for a daily tool then uh the aesthetic of that range can be uh, very attractive i have no no time or eyes for any of those anymore Uh, but very early on it was like oh this would be a really nice thing to get if only i could scrounge the money together. And I, I always wanted something to have a very interesting filling system. Now I don't care. Now I could literally syringe fill from a cartridge. If the, if the nib and the pen is great, then the way that I put ink into the pen, I, 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 best case scenario, it does have a piston. If it doesn't, I'm fine. I was actually the opposite of Sharon. I was like, why would you buy a Mont Blanc if you could buy a Sailor? But now I love them both. But I, I used to be sort of an anti Mont Blanc sort of person. I was like, but, but you know, sailors cheaper, and you know they've got a bigger range of nibs. But now I like them both. I know, really equally, like when I you think. two are across the table from each other. There's there's a very different <laughs> set of opinions. Well, okay, I think we share the same opinions now. But you've arrived. Both like dif- both. You've arrived yeah. differently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 But, we, we started. But in terms of everyone around this particular table, Tav and I probably had the most polar opposite oh, opinions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah, Mister Double Broad. <laughs> I'm. Hey, 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 hey. It's not the size. It's not the size of the tipping. It's I'm how extra you use fine. It. Say whatever you like. <laughs> mm, okay. Um, I think I've also discussed this on the podcast before, but for me, it was pilots. I thought they were boring, boring, boring. I liked colorful bodies, interesting filling systems, and the pilots were just you know they came in burgundy and black, and that was it. Sometimes they come in teal. Which ones? The little ninety ones. Oh, I don't like. I don't. I think. I think because I I got a seventy four at an early stage, and it just did not wow me. I thought the the nib was just really boring. Um, the pen did not feel well balanced in my hand. It was just like too large, and I didn't like how it looked. I didn't like the feel of the nib, and I just I was sort of meh about pilots. I didn't understand why everyone's going crazy about them, but now I I love the nibs. I and really it's about the nibs. The bodies are, they're okay. They're classic. They're not overwhelmingly, you know, stunning. I wish they came in more colors, but they're fine. I wish they came in more colors mainly because I would like to have different nibs in my pilots and not have to double up on pen bodies because that's confusing. I don't want, you know, like four black Pilot Custom 743s with their different nibs because I can't tell them apart. Leave the stickers on. What? I I never do that. (laughs) I do sometimes. (laughs) So that's I've that's only fine. ever done that with calligraphy mediums because they line up with my initials. <laughs> uh, and van- vanity wins. <laughs> Sorry, before we get into the next question, Sharon has just opened the bottle of Cristal 2008 that has been chilling. And we are going to toast each other. Happy second anniversary for the Happy podcast. Happy anniversary. Yay. Uh, I, I would like to, to thank all of the guests that we've had on, the returning hosts, some of which have, have gone a long time, and the old production team, 
as well that we had, and just everyone that that has come together. The the FPO team, Fountain Pens Oceania group, is uh, quite good at um, engaging and and giving us stuff to work off. Look, if we didn't have regular listeners, then we wouldn't be doing this as frequently as we do. And just also a shout out to Anthony, our wine broker, who without without cheers, him, Anthony, nothing, none of this would have been possible. Thank you, Anthony. Thank you, Anthony. Brian's going to be so jealous. Sorry, Brian. So the next question, it was asked by both Trent and Sue. Um, so Trent asked, are there any pens that you didn't buy at the time and have been regretting not buying ever since? I.e., what's the fountain pen that got away? Funny you should ask this because Chuck was actually raising this question as a topic that we will be discussing in depth at the Sydney Pen Show. So let's save it for that episode. Um, You'll just have to be in anticipation until then. But here's to confirm that we will be at the Sydney Pen Show on August 25th. Uh, We will be recording a live episode at the Pen Show. We haven't decided on the time yet, but it'll probably be around midday or early afternoon. There will be seats available for a limited number of people. If you want to watch us live, there will be the opportunity to ask us questions. And yeah, it'd be really great if you could join us. And if you catch us when we're not recording, just come up to the table and talk yep. to Sharon and yeah. I. And Chuck yeah. will be there as and well. Just um, you know, ask us whatever you like. Uh, don't make eye contact. Uh, <laughs> we, we don't like that. But uh. <laughs> Yeah, uh, so we will have a table f- at the actual Sydney Pen Show, but more excitingly, the live recording. Uh, we will not have the crystal there either. I'm sorry. Uh, it'll be <laughs> yeah, it'll longer. Be, but, be but we, we may not have it. But if you see, well, I don't know, if we have like mysterious flasks that are impenetrable and you don't know exactly what we're sipping out of, you can just assume that we're drinking champagne out of those, those thermos. I don't know what the, the, the public license is where we are, so I'm We're going, drinking sparkling water. I'm, yeah. Yeah, I'm yeah that's definitely what it is. Sparkling water. Sparkling grape juice, uh, that's what it is. Yeah, it's, assume it's uh, an appetizer. Is that the- yeah, is that or the, grape Grape-tizer? Yeah. yeah, it's grape-tizer. Grape yeah. Whatever, assume that. We, we haven't purchased it yet. Very, very old grape-tizer. Yeah. Uh, this is an interesting one. This comes from Sue, and it says... Uh, What's the most effort and time we've spent to acquire a pen? I haven't fixated on a specific pen for all that much. I'm kind of a, what you would call an opportunity predator uh, in, in the ecosystem if we're continuing this. But um, any, any of you three, have you uh, fixated and hunted uh, anything down? Sure have. There we are. Sure have. And it's a Visconti. <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, Do you Sponti, regret you're, this as well? You're, you're welcome for the free promo. Um, when I first got into uh, fountain pens, I was really into all of the colourful finishes and Visconti did a uh, Matsi, the lighter, what would they call it? It's the Matsi range from Visconti and they came out with one particular design that I absolutely loved called the Red Symphony. By the time I actually found this particular pen um, – it was long sold out. And so I'd been hunting the Red Symphony for years and years and years. There's, and there's then, a mask on it? Yeah, so yeah. there's a mask on it. It's a mask. It's like a Vienna Symphony uh, theme, but it's all very fiery and gold and yellow and red. And so it was called the Red Symphony. 
I did eventually find one, but the price tag on it was just way too much. I couldn't bring myself to actually – well, actually, I just didn't have the money back then. I was still at uni, so had no money, um, didn't tutor enough kids to get enough spending cash, and plus I went to a lot of restaurants and ate it all, um, ate all my, like, savings. So then um, about three or four years into this hunt for the Red Symphony, uh, Visconti came out with the Blue Symphony – limited edition, which I did manage to get as soon as I saw it get released, someone emailed me and said, I know you've been looking for the red symphony. How would you like a blue one instead? And blue just happens to be my favorite color. So I did end up getting the blue symphony. That that was, um, yeah, quite, <laughs> quite a process. And in particular, the person who emailed me actually was uh, Bri from Chatterley Luxuries before Chatterley Luxuries was a thing. He had on file that all my limited editions had to come with the number 28. It was very Chinese, very Asian of me. And so he kept a stock of limited edition number 28 just for me. And whenever they come in, he'd email me and say, would you want this one? I got you number 28. And then I felt obligated to get it. But anyway, he emailed me because he knew that I'd been on this hunt for the Red Symphony. And so when the Blue Symphony came out, he managed to secure number 28. He emailed me and said, I've got you the Blue Symphony. Do you want that instead? You guys know my story with Eurobox. Well, we've, we've got... We've got a lot of podcasts and we're going back two years now. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, so yeah. even for even for us that have recorded. Okay, okay. Um, like you, I'm an opportunistic buyer. So I don't normally like hunt for bargains online. When I see something I like, I just get it. But in this case, this is the most effort I'd gone to to acquire something. I was in Tokyo for two nights. I was staying in Ginza because I wanted to be near Mitsukoshi and Toya. It's also close to Eurobox. So I went to Eurobox um, the day that I was about to fly out of Tokyo. I had already packed in my hotel. I left my luggage in my hotel and I walked over to Eurobox and they were open. Yay! And when I went into Eurobox, this is my first trip to Eurobox, so I had no idea what credit cards they accepted or don't accept. I saw lots of things that I wanted to buy. I ended up coming away with, I think, two Omas um, and a Nakaya. It was a decapod with Ishime um, Kanshitsu Midori. Beautiful with a music nib. That's, that's the stone finish. That's the uh, stone yeah. finish with this turquoise color. It's gorgeous. Nib is beautiful. So three pens. It was like several thousand dollars. And in my stunted conversation with the gentleman at the desk, he informed me that they did not take credit card, but they will take cash and PayPal. (laughs) So I was freaking out um, in Eurobox, trying to work out how I'm going to pay for this. Um, He told me it is possible for me to, when I get back to Australia or when I get back, I can pay him on PayPal and he'll mail the pens to me. I somehow managed to deduce that this is what he was saying. But then I figured if he mails it to me, then I would have to pay GST on importing it. When it comes through the mail, it gets picked up by customs and you have to pay 10% GST. So what I ended up doing to pay for these pens that I just, I was so, so invested on buying by this stage because I've been staring at it for half an hour. I ran back to my hotel, which is about a kilometer and a half away, went up to my hotel room, Went to my laptop, opened up PayPal, paid for the pens through PayPal, ran back to the store, picked up the pens, confirmed that he'd received the money, and I walked away with those pens. So 
I don't know if you consider that um, a lot of effort. It was certainly more effort than I've ever been to just to buy a pen. You, you did the trip home and trip back. That's that's definitely... Yes, a, a, it, was, it was in like close walking distance, yeah. but it could have been a lot further if I hadn't properly planned my two-day trip in Tokyo. But um, in the end, it all worked out. I just had a minor, you know, stressful moment. And in the end, I was really happy with my purchases. So warning, if you're planning to go to Eurobox... Have PayPal set up on your phone or carry plenty of cash. I, I think you can probably get around the uh, customs thing if you if you list all of your items as uh, used underwear and then no one is going to open it. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I've, I've never, I haven't done that uh, more than more than twice. Um, our next question is uh, favorite background or surface to photograph pens on. So in Sharon's uh, apartment, we did a few too many uh, pictures <laughs> on the same table. Uh, I complained. And uh, I started bringing... It was an excellent surface, though. It's, it's a great concrete. Table. It's isometric concrete. It is. But if you look at our Instagram feed, all you see is the same isometric yeah. pattern. Yeah. <laughs> we might return back to bare table maybe every three or four episodes. <laughs> what we had to do was start bringing in fabric specifically to lay over the table this episode, we have used a ridiculous jacket I'm wearing, which I'll talk about later. But <laughs> in the future, we can just start using scarves. I've probably got enough. Dai has many a scarf. So do I. <laughs> oh, we just use a notebook. Plain white sheet does not get stale. The next one we have uh, What are your favorite smaller makers in the pen world? And this is from Adam. Tav, you've put your hand up to answer I this have, one. I have. Probably Bexley, actually. They're. They're not tiny, but they're not big. Um, this is a company that uh, gets spoken of really well. I don't have anything from them, nor have I really ever held anything They've from got them. some really nice yellow models, I'll tell you that. They've got some really nice ones. Uh, it's not the first person to tell me this. Mm. They, they, they use a lot of sort of classic designs that are reminiscent of, you know, Walt Eversharps and sometimes sort of early Omas pens as well. I just like that they are hand-turned. They're pretty solidly built. They have a really nice design to them. They use pretty, like, I know a lot of people don't like generic nibs, but their generic nibs are custom stamped in a really nice manner. They like they look really pretty. Yeah, I, I just like them. I think they're, they're really well-made, you know, nice materials, et cetera, et cetera. In fact, that was one of my ones that I chased for a while was a Bexley Americana. I'd been looking for one of them for years and I found one. I just pounced on it. Bexley did a few like pen collectors uh, of America kind of editions. And there is one that I've seen that is the cap tapers, but the body doesn't. It's like an inverted Nakaya desk pen uh, and it's yellow. And uh, Ronnie, Ronnie Geron um, on Instagram uh, has one. And I'm not, I'm not putting a call out, but I'm not not putting a call out. I don't think I've really bought anything from small makers, but I think it's worth pointing out Sean Newton. I know he's very well known in the US communities. I've never held one of his pens in my hands, but I'm really impressed by the reputation that he's managed to gain for himself, um, his philanthropic work. Um, I think he raises money for kids. And also I think he does a lot of really innovative stuff in terms of built design. I think he comes up with ways to, you know, mimic Nakaya sort of shapes, really interesting shapes, just from a one-man operation really. 
and um, he I, does the shinobis. Yeah, right? the shinobis, yeah. which is is not really my thing, but um, he's the only one I know of that really does anything like that at a considerable volume. Yeah, and um, apparently they're really well made, so I'm really interested in that. So I have one which is probably not as small as the ones which I'm um, probably actually Bexley size, um, but it's Stilo Art. Stilo Art Karu, Karuizawa, um, so Japanese maker that's really hit it quite uh, big in all of the American um, pen show circles. So you can get some of their ebonite urushi pens. The unique thing about them is that they all come with pilot size 10 or size 15 nibs. So you can actually get a Falcon or a Waverly or a posting nib on a custom, like a really cool body, which would save you your um, black pen dilemma. Sounds like just what I'm looking for. Yeah, so uh, really, um, really, really cool designs, quite simple, but then they can also do some very elaborate maquillage on top of it. Stilo-art.com. This next one we've got is from Arabella. Uh, She says, sometimes after cleaning a pen and putting in a used cartridge that I've filled via syringe, the ink takes a really long time to get to the nib. When that happens, I loosen the cartridge a bit, and in a very short time, the nib is fully inked and it's writing normally. I assume this means that I had the cartridge on so tight that it was airtight so the ink wasn't getting to the feed. I'm wondering if any of you have had similar experiences and or if you encounter other problems when cleaning and re-inking your pens. This, and maybe you can elaborate on this step, this sounds like maybe a breather hole issue with the feed rather than the cartridge itself, because the seal around the cartridge shouldn't affect that, should it? It shouldn't. So it sounds like this is um, this could be a couple of things. Firstly, when you clean your pen out and you dry it off and then you put a cartridge in there, you got to give capillary action time to work. It's not like a converter where you will fill it through the nib and there's ink already in the feed. You have to let the ink seep through the feed. And some feeds are quicker than others. Some are quite slow. So I would say that if, you know, before you try anything else, store it with the nib pointing down overnight and that should help. It could also be that there's actually a, a bubble forming over the feed intake. There's a little, like a, a stick that comes out of the feed that allows the ink to wick into the feed. And there could be a bubble forming around that because there is an ink air exchange that happens a- around that point. If you fill a cartridge with water and you hold a tissue over the end of your pen, you'll see bubbles start to come up into the converter. So that's what's going to happen. But there may be a bubble that's stuck there. And by loosening the cartridge, you may be causing that bubble to shift and therefore allowing it to come back into the feed. So yeah, that, that's, what, that's what I suggest. So if you are getting that bubble thing, that's just sort of a characteristic of that particular feed and cartridge, or you may just need to wait a little bit until the, uh, the, car, the, the, the ink can travel through the feed. I can be a bit impatient and I can, I tend to like shake it over a bit of paper towel, like, you know, make sure I've got a good firm grip on it so I don't, you know, dartboard it into the paper towel and bend the nib. But yeah, so those are things that you could try and also that you could consider. All right. Well, thanks, Tev, for giving us a problem solving approach to that. Um, this next one is from Roy and uh, it says, I have a question for Diana. In your latest show, you were talking about your pen BBS 456 and switching nibs. I have a 456 that I really like and would like to put a different nib on. So my question is, do you just pull the nib out and push in your new nib and align on the feed? I've repaired many vintage pens but can find nothing about the BBS pens when it comes to maintenance or adjustments. Die? Quick answer, 
basically, yes, you can just pull out the nibs and put in a new nib. But a few things you have to be wary of. In the 456s and in a lot of the PenBBS models, you can unscrew the, I guess you call the nib and feed unit out of its like little plastic collar. That part you can just unscrew and just pull out. And in the process of doing that, you have to be wary that you don't lose the O-rings because then you will have a leaky pen. Something else to be noting while you're doing your nib swaps is the feed on the PenBBS pens and the feed to Yovo nibs are quite different. If you look at them side by side, the Yovo feeds are slightly, I guess they you could say they taper a little bit um, on the sides. And in the process of putting Yovo nibs in my PenBBS feeds, I have had to do a few adjustments to the feeds and I think that makes them work a little bit better. I've had to sand down the top of it to make it flat so that the Yovo nibs will fit snugly on the PenBBS feed and I've had to sand the sides of the PenBBS feeds a little bit so its curvature suits the Yovo nibs a bit better. Um, I think this is optional because I've seen guides to pen nib swaps online which don't do this step and presumably it also works. But this is me. I think it fits into the nib collar a lot better if you do sand the feed down a little bit. And that's what I would recommend if you just have a piece of like a nail buffer. That would probably work. But I used um, a fine grit sandpaper wrapped over a nail buffer. So there's a bit of, you know, um, lessening of the pressure. It's easier to control it. That's what I did. Okay. So there you are, Roy from Dai, who has uh, done that herself. Next question from Inharmonic. If you could bring back one vintage model, exactly as produced, at a reasonable price, full range of nibs as was available then, what would it be? Right off the top, I'm going to say Parker Vacumatic in the stacked celluloid. That's me. The Golden Pearl, Emerald Pearl, Asia Pearl, Burgundy Pearl, Silver Pearl. Even when I don't like the colors, it looks amazing. And so many of the pens that have survived today out of that range uh, tend to be in the fine and the extra fine category. But word from the American pen community is that the most common nib for those pens at the time they were produced was medium to broad. And so the surviving ones were the pens that weren't the popular ones or were, were used less. That's one that I wish they still made. I think they made it for less than a 10-year period. But, uh, I mean, you might know a little bit more about that. And, um, Tav, what's your model of choice? Oh, straight away, um, it's the Wall Eversharp Doric. I love them. Such a classic design. They're really well made. Um, they're very valuable at this, at this point. But they also made these gorgeous adjustable nibs that are unlike the current adjustable nibs that you can get today. So... There's the, the pilot one, the Justice 95. That goes from you know normal to mushy. This would go from very, very stiff to, you know, it, I, I hate the word, but a wet noodle. It, it was quite amazing. And they did come in a range of nib sizes. Most of them were extra fine. But I have come across stock double broads and stock italics. They were made of beautiful celluloids. It was a great design. They came in multiple different sizes. So that would be mine. Or... It'd be any pen made out of that Tibaldi Impero celluloid, which I think is probably the, my, my favorite pen material of all time. I'm, I'm just looking up the Eversharp Doric that you're talking about, and the adjustment piece on it is uh, quite interesting. It looks like a little window on um, overlaid on top of the pen. 
It's like a little slider that you slide forward and backwards yeah. that, that allows the tines to flex or not flex. As you slide it forward, I think it was like it had nine different sort of um, like little clicks, yeah, little, little divots. Yeah, there were little little divots there and, you, and each one of them was like a little tiny setting towards being stiffer or finer. And if you slid it forwards all the way, it would be like a manifold nib. If you slid it all the way backwards, it would be almost a calligraphy nib. Anybody else want to jump in about these vintage pens? For me, it'd actually be anything in the Tiboldi celluloid, the three big Tiboldi celluloids, the Transparente, the Iride, and the Imperio. Uh, Imperio? Imperio. So the red, the blue, and the transparent ones that they did. So the big three Tiboldi celluloids would be that. And then obviously, got to throw it in, the, the Parker 51. I love the Parker 51. Mine is related to the Parker 51, and it's the Aurora 88. The original, the, the original iteration. The original iteration of the 88, which is the piston filler with a with ebonite and acrylic body. It has a hooded nib, which is, I think, quite similar in feel to like a, like a Lamy 2000 nib. A little bit of feedback, slightly flexible. I don't think it came in a huge range of nib sizes, but I, I just really love that pen. It's a great size regular writing it's so light i love the feel of the nib it's not as colorful as the parker 51s yep. but um it's more me i guess <laughs> similarly uh, also from inharmonic our next question is which of the defunct brands or factories would you most like to resurrect the janesville or new haven factory schaefer in iowa delta omas uh those are just the ones that are suggested like a lot of newer collectors, I, I kind of um, lament that I wasn't around for the heyday of Omas. Tev is uh, nodding mournfully. Have you got anything to uh, elaborate on there, Tev? Yeah, I put Omas. I've got my little notes here that I wrote last night, and I got a little sad face next to Omas. Um, but my first choice is actually the Schaefer factory in Australia. Um, it would be great to have a, a, a pen manufacturer, like a big-time pen manufacturer, manufacture their stuff in Australia. They had a nib and pen factory here and that means that you got all this expertise here and it also means that, you know, we could go and visit them. And some Australia-only models, which are very interesting. Yeah, mm. yeah, exactly. We could have all of that stuff and it'd be amazing. But unfortunately, you know, it's cheaper to manufacture them in, I think, Hong Kong, I think is where they do it now. So, sad. There's some really interesting models in Delta as well that I wish we still... Tav, when did Delta... Close, close doors. I think it was 2017, 18. Yeah, it, yeah. Was, it was definitely after shame. I started collecting, but it was like relatively new. I'm, I'm not sure what the Janesville or New Haven factory are. but American. So, sure, sure. <laughs> there we are. Which leads us to the end of our fountain pen section with our last question from Sue. And it says, what is your favorite pen of all time? <laughs> I'm, I haven't given this one a huge amount of thought. Impossible. I don't know. Yeah. I was able to, right off the bat, uh, list an ink. I don't know about a pen. I can't commit to one. I can't. I haven't. Well, if we're talking about long-term commitment, then for me it has to be a Pelican M400 and the White Tortoise. I've committed to that for over 10 years. I was going to say, like, the DuPont Olympio. Mm. But, I mean, even then it's probably... It's not my favourite pen. Yeah. It's just the one that has stuck around and has, you know, lasted the test of time. And really, isn't that what your favourite is ultimately? <laughs> mm, I mean, it's not one that, you know, 
sparks joy every time I lift it up. It doesn't make my cells rise. Sharon, you sound like you've been married for the first <laughs> <laughs> Um, so me and Pelica, <laughs> we've had couples therapy, you know, we've gone through breakups, we've gone through makeups, we've... You've weathered it all. I mean, that Pelican has gone through so much plastic surgery that none of the original parts still exist. <laughs> <laughs> Except the nib. The nib is all original. I, I'm not sure. I, I, I suppose if we're going off pen you've had for the longest that you've had the least desire to move on, uh, mine would probably be the pro Realo that I still have. Um, and I don't know if that's an attachment thing or that I still truly find it exciting, but it has stuck around and it's not going anywhere, nor will it. I don't know about favorite. You could ask me, it's like, it's like asking because this is so passion and taste based. It's like someone asking you what your favorite song is on any given day. I'll give you a different answer. I'll give you a different top five. I'll give you a different, whatever. Today, today it is the Pro Gear Riello. Um, anyone, anyone else want to jump in? Oh yeah, I, I was just going to say my today pen uh, would have to be my my favorite would have to be the Doric. Definitely, I couldn't think of any other pen that makes me think, oh my gosh, I really want that pen more than the Doric. Doric is a good vintage name as well because it sounds like a Game of Thrones character. So this next set of questions is just about pen shows and the pen community, and they've come from a number of people. Uh, This first one is from Marcel, and it says, uh, Have any of you gone to pen meets in other countries? I'm planning a trip around France uh, mostly and a bit elsewhere, and I was wondering if you have been to a similar meeting like the Melbourne Pen Posse, etc. I'm sure language will be the hardest part, but would be awesome to see how people do it and what they are into elsewhere. I have not even left the city for a for a pen meet. Well, um, I know that Diane Sharon, you've you've done a little bit of traveling. So I've been to obviously been to the Sydney Pen Meet in its current incarnation. I also went to the first ever Sydney Pen Meet in its former incarnation. That one lasted, I think, three meets. But what year was that in? Two thousand and nine, two thousand and seven. Wow, very, very long time ago. And one person who's still in FPO uh, went to the original, original one. Alan. Alan Doe. Doe. Oh. Yeah, he and I were the only youngins at this meet. But, wow. Um, so I did go to both incarnations of the Sydney Pen Meets. Um, I've been to the Melbourne Pen Meet as well. And most recently, I went to the Tokyo English-speaking Pen Meet. In Tokyo, they host a an English-speaking Pen Meet for people of the community who speak English and also for visitors or to to the city. So um, it's run by Keiko-san, hello, um, who is really, she's fantastic. And the meets are very different, but everyone's very, very welcoming. So um, I really enjoyed that experience. I met quite a few people um, at that particular meet. And it's, it's a completely different vibe, really, really different vibe. A lot less drinking. Yeah, like a lot that, less drinking. That might be an, an Australian thing. Might be a Sydney, Sydney thing. <laughs> <laughs> Although, to be fair, the last Melbourne one that I went to, I did have a couple of cocktails. What was it like when you went to the Melbourne, uh, the Melbourne show, Diana? When I was at the Melbourne show, I didn't really get to attend any pen-related gatherings. 
unless you count lunch, which was like lunch with some of the pen posse people. Sure. There was a little bit of pen being handled around, but because a lot of people were eager to get back to the show, we didn't have time to linger really. Um, the only pen meet I really got to visit, and this is also a very brief visit, was when I was in Hong Kong at the end of last year. I caught the tail end of the Hong Kong pen meet that Leo hosts every Saturday morning. Um, I got there like at one thirty, so some of the people had already left, but I caught a bunch of people that were still there, and the crowd was very youthful, really passionate, reminded me a lot of us in Sydney, but the, the pens that they had, some of them I recognised and a lot that I didn't because they're, it's just easier for them to get Asian Japanese pens over there. Yeah, it was really fun. Yeah. I will say that the pens, uh, there was a very large variety of pens at the Japanese, at the Tokyo Pen Meet. Um, some were a lot of aftermarket finishes and uh, I did cover this in the Tokyo episode. So there were a lot of aftermarket finishes and then the inks, good Lord, there were a lot of inks and um, I had the chance to speak with Daniel as part of it. So we did do an interview with him. And in all honesty, if I had like three hours, I would have just listened to him talk about inks. And that probably wouldn't have been enough time. Um, well, Marcel, if you're planning a trip uh, around Europe, there's a few people that uh, you could reach out to. Marcel, I think, said he was going to Paris. And if you're in Paris, definitely contact Anna, Anna Chiki, ahead of time. I think she is either the organiser or one of the organisers of the Paris pen meets. Mm-hmm. Um, and she speaks very good English. I think most people in, in Paris speak pretty good English. But I think Marcel speaks French as well. Yeah. What's her social tag? Incantadora. Okay. Do you want to read this next one out? Next question is from Joanne. Joanne, the waffle enthusiast, who has been on, I think, one or two episodes of the podcast so far. Uh, She asks, Chuck, how do you keep your shirt white while working with inks? Serious question. Where do you think the future of fountain pen lies? What kind of improvements or changes do you think can be made? Uh, The the answer to all of those is lasers. Uh, But um, I've stained many a shirt. (laughs) I... I have a, a, a number that... I was going to suggest an apron. It could be the only reason to justify me having a leather apron. Uh, it could be the only one. Um, you could make it work. Yeah. Uh, or, you know, just get... Just buy like a Jackson Pollock print type shirt and you won't have to deal with keeping it clean. That's if you want to be a truly committed filth monster. I don't know. I'm a pretty committed filth monster. I clean everything stark naked. That's how I manage sure, it. Sure, yeah. sure, sure, sure. The, the serious part of that question, where the future of fountain pen lies, I'm, I'm not sure. I've, I've kind of, I feel like I've just barely gotten here. I've been around for maybe a couple months longer than we've been doing the pod. And what kind of improvements or changes do you think can be made? QC. Yeah, that's that's really the only QC. helpful thing because any other any other thing is a design choice or it's a you know it's a taste choice and I can't consider those improvements whereas reliability we can definitely consider. And there's only well actually there's a lot that you can do in terms of design lasers. but uh, <laughs> lasers I am um, uh, so 
on the future of fountain pens and the QC point, I do think that this is probably the one area where companies or manufacturers can be focusing more of their efforts in, into rather than just working on new designs or churning out new designs. They can perfect what they've already got. But then it also comes with an interesting balance in that should we as consumers be paying for companies to improve their QC? So what I mean by that is if you think about Twisby when they first came out, you know, it was consumers who really paid for them to up their QC because, you know. Early adopters, you mean. Early adopters paid for it because those early adopters were the ones who had the flaky plating on their rose gold, um, rose gold, what, 540s. In other words, when you're ready to enter into a relationship, you do that then. <laughs> we don't want to really be a practice, you know, exactly. <laughs> practice audience. Exactly, exactly. I don't, I don't want to be the practice run. I'm, I'm totally happy to be a practice run, but we're, we're not talking about pen. This is why I'm so impressed with Opus 88, to be yes. honest. Like, their bodies, they're not necessarily to my taste, but every single nib I've tried from them works like a charm. It's not overly wet, but it's really smooth. Um, it's incredibly well-tuned. There's just nothing wrong with the nibs. I can't say there's anything wrong with the nibs. And they're obviously built to last. Uh, I would agree with that. And I just wish that there were more companies, more manufacturers that did that. Our next question uh, is from Anissa, a hot cup of loving. If you could bring a retailer, maker or nibsmith from the US to the Sydney Pen Show, who would it be? On the other side, if you could come to one show in the US, which one would it be? Uh, I want to bring Annabelle. <laughs> I want to bring Annabelle. She says she's coming next year, yes, guys. Yes, I, I believe. Uh, this is like an early, early oh, news, but okay. she definitely wants to come to the pen show next year. So we're going to try and make that happen. I better brush up on my Dutch then. I'm, I'm only about halfway there on Duolingo. So mm. <laughs> I would love to have um, Mike Masayama. Mikey Yam Yams. Mikey Yam Yams. Yeah, me too. Can, as, as long as nobody tells him that I call him that, then that would be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Mike Masayama, um, he's probably the one nibmeister who's worked on the most number of pens for me. Can't say enough good things about his work. I would say we're probably flush with choices for people to bring here. In terms because of, no one's come here yet. Exactly. And in terms of the other half of the question, on the other side, if you could come to one show in the US, uh, which one would it be? San Francisco. San Fran. I'd go to the DC show. I was going to say, uh, yeah. the, uh, I thought that the word was uh, DC, but I'm, I, t- again, I'm uh, not sure. Largest, according to them. I'd want to go to the Philly one. The Philly. Because I have a, a sick and twisted obsession with special edition Franklin Christophs. And they, they co-host the Philly Pen Show. So the largest range is at the Philly Pen Show. So that's the one Okay, for me. so uh, shout outs to DC, San Fran and Philly. San Francisco for me because I have friends who are located around the Bay Area and it's close to Los Angeles. There's a lot of really good food in Los Angeles and it's a really good sized show. It's a pretty big show. It's not too far. I think there's direct flights to LA and that matters Yes, on me. sale from Qantas at the moment for $998, yeah. not sponsored. One of the longest direct flights in the world. I'm doing the longest direct flight in the world <laughs> later on this <laughs> that, year. That being said, if Qantas now wants to sponsor us for that, then... Quantas, yeah, hey. sponsor us. <laughs> We're more than willing Please. to accept gracious donations. Um, 
radical idea, but maybe like the fifth anniversary nib section episode. We all we, fly we, overseas. We, all fl- we, we make Road it trip. like a, a like the San Fran pen show episode or something like that on location. We, we send a delegation and everybody has uh, monogrammed cursive script jackets. The San Fran pen show is actually on the same weekend that the Sydney pen show is on as well. Oh, we'll so we're definitely not going to be at San Fran. We'll have to oh, live stream. Go to the DC Super Show instead. But I didn't actually get to answer. I, I would have. I would have brought um, Richard Binder. I'd love to just have a quick chat with him and just, just sort of learn that that guy is. You know, he was one of the. He's probably the most famous nib worker in the nib meister in the world. So I'd love to be able to learn from him and at least shake his hand and say you're an inspiration at the very least try to figure out what it what it is about the hands <laughs> yeah 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 so the the next question uh is from inharmonic again uh and this is an interesting one and it's uh is this hobby too consumerist or bourgeoisie interesting question diana you put your hand up for this one okay i said bourgeoisie i should have said bourgeois. just bourgeois bourgeois um so both consumerist and bourgeois are used as I think nowadays as derogatory terms. It's seen as materialistic, it's shallow, it's frivolous. And I think if you don't understand the hobby, it's very easy to say that it's shallow and materialistic and it doesn't mean anything. It just means that you're seeking a status symbol or something very extravagant to display, you know, oh, how classy I am. Oh, I have such good taste. Whereas I think for a lot of us who are actually in the community and who understand it from the inside it's not necessarily about the objects in itself or not purely about the object in itself and this is where it tends to be as a hobby more focused around community now there are things like hard wired things about fountain pens which makes it easy to be quite materialistic and consumerist about it Um, it's in general quite expensive it's something that's indivisible so it's not something you can buy and then easily share with someone else Um, you know you you own it and it's yours and you use it and it has a lot of personal meaning as well you know it's my pen Um, it's to my liking and so on and I think this is why the community around inks is a you have a lot less perception of being very consumerist and bourgeois around inks even though people spend just as much money on inks or you can spend just as much on inks if not more if not more i would say equal to the value of uh, a pelican m800 exactly but i think with inks at least (laughs) inks is something that you can share send samples the experience of it can be shared with more people absolutely and it's not something that you can necessarily just hoard and i think this is a perception of hoarding with fountain pens which is where the charge of being consumerist comes from and of course i'm sure from a lot of fountain pen brands they would love it to be extremely consumerist and we just bought things to hoard and to display i i like fountain pens and so on and i'm sure there are people who buy fountain pens for that purpose Mm. totally yeah there are many different kinds of manufacturers as well exactly so i don't think there's anything intrinsically consumerist or bourgeois about fountain pens. And certainly if you say that fountain pens are middle class, then, you know, there are fountain pens you can get for $2. And there are communities around fountain pens that you can buy for $2. And they are just as legitimate as fountain pen communities built around Mont Blancs. I actually, just speaking of, you know, outwards appearance, I've known of other people who maybe aren't as part of the community, but they buy a cheap fountain pen to look fancy because they're using a fountain pen. It could be that they're wealthy enough to buy an expensive Mont Blanc as a status symbol, 
or they could buy one that they think looks like a Mont Blanc to look like the sort of person that uses a fountain pen. And I think that that is a little consumerist. I don't particularly have a problem with buying a cheap item. I suppose it's your life. You do with it what you want. But I really, I really like that, that interpretation of it being a very inwards focused thing. Like these pens provide us with joy because we enjoy them, not because we look like we're rich or something like that. That said, I don't like the tendency. I mean, I think all of us, we understand that consumerism is a part of our culture and we try to resist it where we can because it's wasteful. But at the same time, it's difficult to deny that there is this drive towards, you know, FOMOism um, and this pressure, I guess, within certain parts of the community from brands, from maybe even retailers. Um, And I don't think it's purposeful. I think it's completely unintentional. But, you know, that's the sort of system we work in. That's capitalism. And as long as you don't see it as mean or wicked, that is the sort of pressures that we're working under. And that's part of the reason why on this podcast, we don't really do news. And that was something that I intentionally built into the structure of this podcast. We don't really cover new releases um, unless it's something that really excites us. Or that we've individually gotten. Yes, we really only talk about new pens when we we buy new pens. I got hyped about the new such and such pen or something like that. But this is in no way an endorsement. Yeah, there's, there's no reporting on a thing just because it happens to be out on the yes, market right correct, now. correct, correct. Because I think once you start doing that, you, you're really buying into the FOMO. Once you start talking about what's new, then you have to keep talking about what's new because that's what people expect. And then that, that creates the incentive for people to buy whatever is new just to talk about it. And, you know, that, that's my long answer. So I don't think it's intrinsically consumerist, but it's easy to fall into that trap. And I think we should all try to step back. I think I think there are a few of us that uh, are not guilty of some level of conspicuous consumption. Oh, <laughs> definitely. I do. I like. I'll be the first to put my hand up and say I'm the worst when it comes to FOMO, right? And when it comes to consumerism, yeah, I, I'm pretty bad. I'm pretty bad. But you know what? I take the hit so the rest of you guys don't have to. Oh, we I appreciate it. I take it. a few hits myself as well. well the, the other thing is that uh, we've, we've talked about how relatively streamlined my uh, and how stripped down my purchases are, you know, in comparison. But at the same time, I will get a thing and then put it all up and be like, I just did it for the flex. Don't care. Uh, so you you can occupy many spaces. What's the uh, so what? I contradict myself very well. Then I contain multitudes. That's for all of us. Uh, I th- I think it's good that this community does, doesn't have as many of those sort of hype beast characters like some of the, the streetwear communities might. There is a Supreme Caveco that I kind of like. I don't know what the price tag is. <laughs> yeah. I'm How many thousands of dollars? Is I'm it? not going to look at it. But but uh, just it's just a red Caveco. That's that's the thing though. Like. In the community, that wouldn't be considered like a big thing. People would be like, oh, it's supreme. I'm going to buy it. People would be like, but does it spark joy? Does it, you know, does it, do, you know, will I enjoy using it? Is it at a reasonable price point? Is it limited edition? Yes, I suppose. But things like, you know, you got the Sailor limited editions. They are. Good Lord. Exactly, right? They are beautiful. But I don't know, a, a, like a supreme or a Bape branded. Caveco be like, uh, yeah. What's, we, what's so I, special I, I, about? I suppose it? we just have a different, different collabs, different 
points of, of interest. Yeah. 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 By the way, talking of collabs, I'm so glad the whole Mark Newsom Mont Blanc pen never really got hyped up. Who talks about the Mark Newsom anymore? The M. It was, <laughs> the uh, M. It was just the Mont Blanc Lamy, to be honest. It really was. That's uh, a collective take on uh, that question from Inharmonic. Um, we've got one more question for our fountain pen section. And it's from Adam. Uh, and it says, uh, what pen-related advice would you give to your younger self? I've got one. One major one uh, and an additional serious one. First major one is don't take your OMS on the bus that day. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, don't remind <laughs> me. <laughs> Yeah, don't, don't take your OMS on the bus that day. Leave it at home. Uh, the ballpoint was fine. Uh, the serious question is, I saw the A23 very early on. Loved it. And I tried to grade my purchases being like, oh, I don't know if I'm ready for that. I spent definitely double the money on 92s, on other pens, getting up to where I essentially wanted to be. None of those pens are around anymore. And the A23 is. Uh, so at some point you have to trust if a thought has been lingering around and won't go away at some point you have to pull the trigger on that i'm gonna like borrow brian's frequent advice if, buy more kakunas well, well yes that's that's our frequent message but also instead of buying 12 gin hals save up for a kakuno <laughs> <laughs> that's very solid advice i mean the amount of resources that would go into producing a gin how is probably even more because they tend to be more metal than a yeah kakuno. and think of like all the um the carbon miles and the shipping yeah, and everything yeah it's Just get a kakuno a kakuno will last you longer than 12 gin hows for sure those things are troopers so um but but my actual advice to my younger self would probably be don't buy vintage pens off people you don't actually know um, because I've bought vintage pens off the internet just take a risk and often the risk isn't worth it it's just too much unknowns and often it's just a lot of bother to return them so mine would be don't sell that m800 for 185 bucks <laughs> Um, or okay. your advice to your younger self would be, those Arashi Zukus are not going to be limited edition. <laughs> Just wait. I had such bad FOMO at the time. I was one of the early adopters before Arashi Zuku became cool. Um, <laughs> as well as ubiquitous. Yes. Um, no, on a more serious note, it would probably be buy more limited editions and don't sell everything. Because I sold a lot of pens. Except for the Visconti. Sell those. Oh, yeah. I should have sold those earlier. But, um, you know, before they all broke down. <laughs> so it's not my problem anymore. Um, I've only ever had one Visconti breakdown and it's still with me. Um, You're going to open that up at some point and there's going to be a fungus that has been incubating for Put it years. next to my poor broken Aurora. <laughs> for, for our fifth year anniversary, we'll uh, light it up. It's celluloid. We'll light it up, 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 light up. It up. <laughs> light it up. Light it up, light it up. But for me, it probably would be, yeah, don't be so hasty with all the stuff that you've sold. Because a lot of things I sold very early on, like I had the full set of Tiboldis, the Tiboldi celluloids that I now reminisce about. I had almost a full set of Omas. I have had some brilliant, brilliant pieces over the years. But on a particular day, um, you know, on a whim, I just sold them all. I sold quite a lot of things um, over the years, and now I kind of wish I didn't. I wish I still had some of the pens I used to have. Tav, what about you? Stop flexing your vintage nibs so damn hard. This oh, is a message to dear. your younger self. Yeah, 
So when you speak about warning people against flexing, it's from experience. It is from experience. I, I, when I when I mentor somebody, for example, in the Air Force cadets, as I'm, if I'm mentoring a young staff member or something like that, one of the things I say to them first up is I say, I make the mistakes so you don't have to. Okay, so learn from me. I don't want to see you tripping over something I've already tripped over in the past. So I have in the past, there's a least three nibs in the past when I first got into flex nibs that I have caused very tiny cracks to form in them. I had one of them repaired by Greg Minuskin and he did a pretty damn good job of that. The other two I've left and I just don't flex them anymore. Um, But I overdid it because of what the internet showed me. They showed me this is how far you can flex it. It doesn't say this is how far you should flex it. Or, but it tells with, you this or is, with which specific nib? Or, you know, or you, yeah, then that's the thing. Each, each of the nibs back then was not mass produced. It was, it was individual. So there was, you know, the sort of that margin of what is overflexing was actually different for each nib, even if it was made for, this, for the same model of pen. But that being said, there was still a safe level of flexing that you, you see. Um, I found this little screenshot of a, a little newspaper clipping saying, um, flexes uh, can, can widen from a hairline to it's said in inches. I don't remember, but it, it ha- basically worked out to be like one millimeter. That's it. That's what the most flexible Waterman's artist nibs were designed to flex till. Yeah. That, that's what the, that's the advice I'd give. Or I would say, stop buying extra fine nibs. It's just a phase. Okay. Oh dude. <laughs> <laughs> for me, for me. Okay. I'm not judging. It's just for me. Because I had to sell them all. Some sobering advice to our uh, less temporally inclined selves. Uh, this leads us to our miscellaneous section of the questions. Um, first one is uh, from Brian, uh, also known as Chewbacca. What do you all do for a living? I, I, I wish I knew. Uh, I, I'm a registered nurse, uh, to leave it short. Um, I work in a surgical ward. and Gastro nurse. You've mentioned before. Abdopelvic surgery. So a lot of it is is gastro. Yeah. Um, and let's go around the horn. Tab? Um, I work for New South Wales Health Pathology in the Forensic and Analytical Science Service. Within that, I'm in the Drug Toxicology Unit. So testing people for illicit substances, drugs of abuse, and not so illicit substances, you know, anti, anti-abuse drugs that they should be taking but that they not always are. Wait, so are you like, so Brian, um, Brian Saputra also works in a, like a lab. Are you like him where you can't actually use any inks except document and blue black? I'm so glad that I have pretty much free reign except for if I use an ink that's like, you know, too bright or not legible. I tried to just go blue or black or blue black just so I don't raise any eyebrows. Although I did rock up on my first day with um, smoky quartz and it, no one cared. So I think there is there is one task that I have to use blue or black. But the rest, I suppose, I have used green before. I've used teal. I've used brown. I've used purple. And I've never had issues. There so. is no TAV protocol. There's no, yeah, there's no, yeah. Well, the Brian protocol at, at Brian's work, yeah, yeah. but yeah. So, Sharon, I'm in tax. I do tax. Love tax. Oh, if you love it. Um. So this year, <laughs> I've got. Uh, I work with multinationals, large multinationals. So well, I'm unless- half Armenian, half Dutch, so I'm multinational. <laughs> <laughs> Would you consider I'll, I'll drop- yourself a large multinational? T- <laughs> hey, oh, I'm on a diet. Okay. <laughs> I'm on a diet. I'll drop my paper. I'll drop my receipts off tomorrow. Okay. I can see it rolling down the hill. 
And literally, the question that I get asked the, the most is, uh, in the fountain pen community, is, what can I claim as a tax deduction? Not what she does. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't have insurance that covers that type of advice. Um, I work in international education, so my clients are universities. Mm, okay. Um, favorite podcast for each of you, stationary or otherwise? This one is from Alex. Uh, let's let's go in reverse. Diana, do you want to start? I know you're a big podcast consumer. I am a massive podcast consumer. <laughs> I have about anywhere between 50 and 70 podcasts on my subscription feed at any one time. Some of my favorite podcasts, I've, I think I've mentioned as recommendations before, but here are a few more. Gastropod, I think I've wrecked that before. Recently, I've become obsessed with ologies and illusionists. Ologies is about various um, expert scientists and mostly scientists. It's Ali Ward, who's a science communicator and a comedian. She interviews a bunch of different people who are experts in their field in a really accessible way. Also, illusionist is about etymology and language mainly. I also love Planet Money. Um, which is an NPR podcast. It's about economics in you know everyday life. I especially like it when they talk about real life scenarios and not just theory. I like Little Gold Men, which is a film and TV podcast from Madani Fair. I like Slate Culture Gabfest, which is a culture podcast from the Slate Media Company. And I also really like 1A, which is like a contemporary affairs news podcast, which is hosted by Joshua Johnson for NPR. Even though he gets sometimes a bunch of guests who are quite dickish, in my view, he is a really classy um, moderator. And yeah. just, I, I learned so much from how he carries himself with his guests. Like he is confrontational when he needs to be mm -hmm. and really gentle when he needs to be as well. And I really respect his work. So that's that. Okay. Uh, what about you, Sharon? You were you a big podcaster? Um, not as big as Die, evidently, but there are a couple that I do follow. So my commute is not particularly long, although it is longer at the moment because I do walk into work in the mornings. So the couple that I listen to are Women at Work by Harvard Business Review. And it's just, it's one of those things because I do work in corporate, um, a lot of the themes that come through from the Harvard Business Review Women at Work podcast really hit very, very close to home. They talk about experiences that women deal with that uh, others wouldn't have to experience in the workforce. And for me, a lot of those things, you know, they explore themes which are not just about the glass ceiling. I, I think the glass ceiling is very five years ago, um, just discussing about the type of gender discrimination that you might have in a corporate environment. They talk about um, like one of the most recent episodes that I've that's really um, hit home with me has been about why women sabotage other women at work. Like why do women compete with each other rather than with men and how that carries through? Like why should women not empower each other? Would you like to trade points with Diana about that? Right now, while me and the perception watch. that there can only be one woman in charge at any exactly. particular level, exactly because you're yeah. like the because minority hire. <laughs> yeah, there's only enough room for one to stand at the peak, and it's not a matter of empowering each other; it's a matter of bringing each other each other down almost. Um, I mean, just imagine if we had two female presidential candidates in the US. Oh my god, that would <gasps> never happen. That would be radical. <laughs> you are radical on our podcast. I will not. I will not stand for <laughs> it. I mean, you know, it was sacrilegious enough when Hillary was up. Yeah. Yeah. There can only be one. Yeah, Sarah versus Hillary. <laughs> Um, no, so I do really like uh, Women at Work by the Harvard Business Review. 
And then on a similar vein, I'm looking at my list of podcasts in my phone. The other one is um, the Wall Street Journal, The Secrets of Wealthy Women, which is is a little bit more lighthearted than the women at work. But again, it's that kind of insight as to how women overcome the innate unconscious bias to become successful. Uh, You're seeing a theme here. And then um, two others. One is the Minimalist podcast. And I know that's really amusing for most people because I am not a minimalist. I tried. I, I tried really hard. Like the Minimalist, they talk about, um, they had this whole episode on how you can minimize your life by doing a packing party where you pack everything into boxes and just don't unpack them. And if you haven't unpacked them because you don't need them, then you chuck it all away. That sounds like outsourcing your hard work. Well, I did that. I did a packing party when I moved and I put all my stationery into boxes. They're still in boxes. Do you think I've chucked them out? Hell no. <laughs> Just sell them at the show. <laughs> I can't I can't let go of them. I'm attached. Um, so the Minimalist podcast. And then the last one I actually got as a recommendation from, it must have been Aiden. Aiden, who's been on the podcast like very early on. Aiden or Chrissy, um, called Buffering the Vampire Slayer. Which is a pretty good one as well. Okay. Um, Tev. I've mentioned this one as a recommendation, I think, one or two episodes ago. It's called Behind the Bastards. It's a podcast about historical, uh, not even, some, and many of them are also contemporary. to Lesser known bastards. Yeah, lesser known. Some of them are greater known. Some of the glorious ones. But like, it's, it's people that. So they do some episodes on people that are well-known, but they might do lesser-known aspects of them. Like, for example, the Reagans, but not on their economic policy, but on their policy towards HIV-AIDS. Yep. That yep. was, you know, I thought that was a really interesting episode. That was one of the most interesting two-part episodes that I've, I've listened to from them. So that, definitely check them out. They're fantastic. They have comedians on all the time. They have other people that are just very interesting. They have a great dynamic with the host and the guests too. So they're fantastic. I'll save my my second one for a recommendation that will keep you in suspense. Sure uh, I, I listened to two main podcasts. Uh, the first one being How Did This Get Made, and which was probably one of my earliest podcasts, uh, one of the longest running. It's a movie where three comedians, Paul Shear, Jason Manzoukas, My Spirit Animal, uh, and Junaid Rayfield, um, all discuss movies which started out as being bad movies and has turned into crazy movies, whether they are good or bad. Uh, so early on, I think the first episode is they talk about the movie Burlesque uh, with uh, Cher and Christina Aguilera. Uh, love that movie. I don't care what anyone says about how trash it was. I love that movie. You should listen to the pod episode. Nick Kroll is, I think, on that episode as well. Yeah. Um, That one is a consistently great podcast. The other podcast I listen to is Comedy Bang Bang, which is run by Scott Ackerman, and it's an improv comedy podcast. And the basic formula is they have Scott Ackerman, the host. They have a guest, which is usually not playing a character. And then they have two other comedians, two minimum, um, show up through the course of the episode playing characters Uh, And they improvise a story together. There is a caveat to this recommendation. Because it is improv comedy, the best episodes will be some of the funniest things you've ever heard. And the worst episodes will be truly soul-rending. I recently got back through a trip from Canberra 
past Canberra, sorry. Uh, and on the way back, started listening to an episode and I got 45 minutes of the way through an episode. A new character showed up and I turned the whole thing off rather than follow it through to its end. I, I will say that the episodes that I love the most are well worth the trash that you have to slog through. Can you name a few? If you look for episodes with Jason Manzoukas, uh, Andy Daly, or Paul F. Tompkins, Jason Middleditch as well, who you may know from Silicon Valley. Those episodes are generally pretty consistently good. There are some new favorites uh, that that I have, but they're, they're too numerous. There are over 600 episodes now. Look for the Jason Manzoukas ones. That's me. Next question is from Leo, and it is favorite food. I'm going to limit everyone to one uh, so that we don't we don't delve too deep. Uh, I recently mentioned uh, that I went to Gamshara last night. Love a thick tonkotsu broth ramen. That's my probable favorite food. If I if I need to uh, narrow it down, uh, specifically a tonkotsu broth. I love a good fresh Shanghainese shenjianbao. Oh, yum. Pan-fried dumpling. Pan-fried dumplings, kind of pillowy on the top, crunchy at the bottom with a lot of broth in the middle. Oh, <laughs> come over to my parents' place sometime. My mom makes a really good one. Well, now you're invited. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Um, look, half my friends just invite themselves. <laughs> Looking at you, Wendy and Pauline. Um for me, uh, it's home cooking. My mum is a superb chef. And if any of you are fortunate enough to ever have a meal cooked by my mum, you will absolutely agree. Can attest. Really good. <laughs> she She's absolutely amazing. And um, it's really funny because it's not her day job. She only learnt to cook very, very late on <laughs> in life, actually. And so it gives me hope that I'm not a lost cause yet. Um, so my mum... Made- I've tasted your dumplings. They're good. As, uh, as Eddie Huang would say, um, most of our mothers could cook circles around these guys. Oh. No, my mum is shit. <laughs> Sorry, mum. My, my mum uh, cooked very much for speed and efficiency. But uh, Eddie, Eddie Huang's um, opinion is that everyone gets three meals a day to practice. My mum was the baby of the family, so she never really learnt to cook. <laughs> my mum was the eldest of the family. There you and, go. Um, yeah, so I've learnt very little from her. But um, I do. I can make a decent dumpling. But my favourite food is the shallot and ginger mud crab that my mum cooks. Oh, <laughs> I love she, a mud and, crab. And it's not something that we do that often anymore because um, you have to buy a live mud crab, and they only come in season certain, basically every single month of the year in Australia except for winter. Um, it's every month that has an R in it is a month where you can get mud crab. So it's all months except for winter, and. Um, whenever we, you get them, you have to get them live and it's quite a process to actually clean them out. And dad used to be the one who cleans them out ready for cooking and mum would just do the cooking. As my dad has gotten older, he's now cared about karma and juju and he thinks he gets bad juju from killing all these mud crabs. And so he refuses to do it now unless it's for some really, really special occasion. So where whereas we used to have mud crab once every like two months, maybe one, two months, now it's for a really special occasion. I have to wait till my birthday every single Where, where the generosity outweighs the bad, bad juju. Bad juju, yep. yeah, absolutely. And so for me, that absolutely my favorite food. But most things that mum cooks, I enjoy. Here we go. Tav. Oh, it, it's very difficult to say. I, I've, I've just, thought of five different things yeah, after I said. Yeah, there's so many things that are equally, like taste-wise, but 
one that is not only taste, but there's a emotional element to it as well. It's something I haven't had for a number of years. It's uh, a dish called kugel that was cooked by my grandmother. It's a it's got sort of a Jewish spin on a a Dutch dish or a German dish. It's kind of a a combination of a pudding and a fruit stew. It's got lots of spices in it. It's essentially got like a big like lump of dough filled with um, dried fruit and stuff like that that's been sort of um, cooked and baked in a pot full, filled with stewed fruit and spices. Delicious, amazing. And my grandmother used to make it a lot. Um, she's unfortunately in a nursing home now and so can't make it. And it it's a very labour-intensive thing. You'll have to learn how to cook it. Well, that's the thing. Uh, this was going to segue into into just a little teaser for the recommendations section. Um, there is a recipe book that has been released that contains her special recipe. <gasps> Woo! God! That oh, I remember normally this. does not actually – like because it's not – Kugel is not Kugel. Like she's got her own version of it that is unique. Right, because when you mentioned it, I Googled it and some of the variations I found were not like sweet or desserty. No, no. Uh, for some reason, there's every different country has their own version. But yeah, so I'll, I'll leave it for the recommendation section, but that, that, that recipe book will be there as well. We'll circle back around. Top about to go on holiday hype songs to play on repeat. And this one is from Leo. I have one. There you go. I spent a lot of time thinking about this. Actually, I didn't. But the final countdown. Okay, set the scene for this one. Is this like a walking through the airport situation? It's uh, like every single day leading up to the holiday type of thing. Okay. Every single day I'll be playing it. Okay. Um, Diana? Don't really have one, but maybe Strict Machine? Mm-hmm. I, I can't remember who, who sings that. I, I'm going to say that this is a song that the older I get, the more difficult it is to tune out the lyrics, uh, but still has uh, an emotional element that has overridden a lot of it. Uh, and it is DMX's Party Up. Uh, I advise everyone to uh, listen to it and don't at me uh, about lyrics. Uh, I know. Don't worry about it. I know. Uh, but that one uh, has, has a, so far failed to, to get me stupid hyped. Oh, Strict Machine is from Goldfrap. Goldfrap. Yeah. There it is. Um, Tef? Well, okay. Something my brother introduced to me a few years ago was a genre called Vaporwave, and I thought it was really funny at first, and then I was like, actually, this is pretty good. It's kind of a parody on the sort of the consumerist culture of the 90s, and a lot of it's kind of consists of like elevator music and on hold music that's just been sort of pumped out of electronic speakers, but it's been sort of chopped and screwed and made to sound like it's sort of on a stretched cassette player. A lot of it has a really great groove to it. And there's one particular artist that him and I just randomly text each other throughout the day and be like, dude, how good is this song? And the artist is called Telepath. They're really like, it's weird. It's weird music. The first time you listen to it, you'll be like, oh God, what, what is this? Anything that you do for parody long enough, you will come to enjoy yeah. sincerely. Yeah. I just Googled Vaporwave and the first um, result that came up is an Esquire article from 2016 that is titled How Vaporwave Was Created and Then Destroyed by the Internet. Was it? Oh, okay. I I didn't get the memo that it was destroyed. An exploration of the anti-consumerism music that died the way it lived. This is kind of like a Dada thing. (laughs) That's what I was thinking as well. It is multi-layered. I'll tell you that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Collage and bricolage. Yeah, Yeah, it's... 
it's unusual, but this this group, tele, well, I think it's a single artist actually, Telepath. It's got a like a real sort of groove to its songs, a real funk to it. So I quite like that. It's real so you, so you, you listened to it insincerely. And I did, yeah. And then I was like, oh, actually, this is pretty good. Very on board. There's some funny ones. And then there's some ones that are actually pretty damn funky. Not going to yeah. lie. This next question is from Adam. Uh, it says, the favorite bits of Australia and New Zealand that international listeners may not be familiar with pen related or not. Uh, I love how strong, I love hate how strong Australia's brunch and coffee culture is. There's like a real. Took the words out of my mouth. There's a real preoccupation with it that I find so heartwarming. And at times, particularly when I'm trying to get a table on a Sunday, infuriating. I've done a bunch of traveling and some of the best coffee that I have ever had is still, you know, meters away from my house. Uh, there's a truly competitive and luxurious coffee culture in Australia. So recently on the Panatic Slack, I think it was Kat and John Phelan who announced, so shout out to Kat and John Phelan and their new podcast, The Leaky Nib. But in the first episode of The Leaky Nib, they were talking about how they were at a pen show and neither of them managed to bring any good coffee. And so as coffee snobs, they ended up drinking Starbucks. And I apologize if this offends any Americans, but my obvious comment in reply as an Australian was, can you really call yourself a coffee snob if you drink Starbucks? That's not real coffee. I Starbucks tried and <laughs> unsuccessfully, uh, there are precious few stores remaining in Australia. Oh, so you weren't a fan of the orange mocha frappuccino? No, the, the Derek Zoolander special? No. <laughs> I mean, they, they make nice dessert drinks, but I wouldn't call it coffee. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think food in Australia is, in general, really good. In most of the main cities, our produce, our seafood in particular, we have really good access to reasonably priced and good quality seafood. So I think just ask Leo would be the response here who recently did a food tour around Sydney. I believe he came to Sydney just to eat and to pose pens with said food because a number of them have now shown up on Facebook and have received a number of um, comments associated with it. Uh, one of my favourite ones was when he posted a pen with one kilo of cheese and prosciutto, which was at your house, Di, um, and that obviously received a number of uh, Wait, where comments. was this? On Instagram or on Facebook? On Facebook, he posted, he goes, oh. pen for scale, one kilo <laughs> of cheese, prosciutto and like other good stuff. Um, but no, the food in Australia is absolutely one of the top things because the produce is really fresh. You know, you get seafood that you wouldn't get in many other places of the world. You get diversity that you wouldn't get in so many other places of the world. But um, Chuck, you took the words right out of my mouth. I was going to say the coffee here and the bottomless brunches. Like weekends in Australia are for bottomless brunches. Wait, there's a bottomless brunch? Mm. They tend to be in the, the kind of the same area as the bottomless mimosa type places. Oh. Yeah. I've been going to the wrong places. Yeah, you've been going Jeez. to the wrong brunch places. But um, I've done a lot of the bottomless brunch places uh, because I do like a good mimosa. I like a good bellini, actually. Australia is generally known for beaches, mm-hmm. um, eh. the outback. But I don't think... Don't forget the spiders. The spiders, of course. And the deadly snakes. The deadly animals. Um, 
Like, don't come here to shop because there's not much to buy here, really. Ugg boots are cheaper overseas. (laughs) Most things are cheaper overseas. (laughs) The only thing that's worth coming here for are the beaches, the wildlife, the nature. And the food. The food is, the so food is great. And the company. People are and pretty the company. great too. We're pretty great. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're pretty great. Right, Leo? Uh, and Tav. He said pen related or not. And I was like, the other three are going to mention not pen related <laughs> Okay, okay. We're doing pen related then. I don't think he's that well known outside of Australia, but James Finnis. Pensive pens. I mean, he's very well known in Australia, but I don't know how well known he's in the international community. And he should be. Serendipity. I think he hit it big with the serendipity. Oh, did he? Well, still check him out, though. The, the guy can make pens like the best of them. Okay. Uh, last question is from Scott, uh, a.k.a. Paperlate, and uh, says, if each of you were to podcast about something other than pens, ink, and the people who go crazy for them, what would the topic of those podcasts be? I'm going to leave this one for you to start, Tev. Uh, for me, it would be definitely barbershop or acapella singing. Um, I know there is already an Australian barbershop podcast, so I won't start one. Don't want to tread on your toes. I'm fairly certain there I mean, are other acapella like podcasts too. Four of you could do that podcast, right? Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> no, but there are, there are podcasts, you know, that talk about the latest events, the latest competitions, um, even, you know, talking about the international barbershop community too, just various things to talk about. It's a pretty diverse art form, so... But yeah, I'd love to host a podcast about that too. Absolutely. But unfortunately, there already, already is one. So if you're listening, Ash, I'd love to come on the podcast. Yeah. Uh, how about you, Chuck? Uh, I, I have two kind of ideas. I think that the healthcare stories that dominate the world are very doctor focused. So here, here's some quick stats for you. In Australia, for every 500 people, you have 14 nurses. For every 500 people. Contrast that with for every 500 people, you have 10 doctors. That doesn't seem like a great ratio, does it? It seems like either not enough nurses or too many doctors. But leading on to that, I think that uh, the chief story we tell uh, about any kind of healthcare worker in, in any kind of format whether it be TV show, whether it be movie, whether it be book, is Doctor. Uh, whereas I think... With the single exception of Scrubs. Uh, Scrubs had a, had a great inclusion. There's also Nurse oh, Jackie. Oh, Nurse Jackie. Nurse Jackie, which is well-known by nurses, less well-known. There's another one over the hill that I've been... But in the collective consciousness, there aren't really that many. So I would love to do a nursing podcast. On the, on the flip side, I have had another podcast idea from a group of friends... Uh, this uh, may develop without me. Now that I'm talking about it, someone may steal it. It's fine. The idea was uh, you would get four people in a room. Each of you get 15 minutes. You pick a guilty pleasure. You have to defend it. Uh, If you can convert at least one person around to your way of thinking for this guilty pleasure, then um, mission successful. And the idea was you had to pick True, like truly collectively thought of as bad ideas. So I was going to find someone. I have a couple friends that are staunch defenders of it, but the idea was the first topic would be episode one, The Phantom Menace. There's a lot there. There's a lot there. There's more than 15 minutes. But if you can convert one person around to your way of positive thinking about it, I think it'd be great listening. Uh, That's me. Um, and my two ideas. Uh, what about you, Diana? As I said before, I listen to a lot of podcasts. And um, you might have 
gathered from the way that I ramble from topic to topic. I know about a lot of things, but at a very like shallow level. <laughs> so I a, can talk a, about a, a lot of things. smattering, they would yes, call it. Um, a dilettante, let's put it that mm. way. <laughs> so I, I guess I could talk about a lot of things, but I think something which is more a concrete idea would be, I would love to do a podcast where you gather a bunch of people together and you just do like a live reenactment of fanworks. So like you pick a story and you you act read it out. And act it out. You read and act it out. Exactly. Can I yeah. put my name down for this? Yeah, me too. Me too. Cuz I have you know guiltily <laughs> written I'm not necessarily I won't admit to writing anything. I but, have. Uh, well, I won't admit to it. Um but I have indulged in some of the podfic that you can get, and there are some. Good, I have recorded podfic. Well, there you go. Yeah. Uh, we should. We should. By the way, first episode should be a really bad one. Follow. You should alternate, actually, and not tell people which is which. Sharon, do you want to uh, close off your? What, what podcast would you do? I would do one about tax. <laughs> True. Have you been invited to do a podcast about tax? I have not. But, you know, if anyone ever wants to invite me to do a podcast about tax, I would love to. Um, I have podcasting experience, guys. Two years of podcast looks good on an entertainment resume. I know, I know. And there are some people who are now being interviewed for these podcasts, these tax podcasts, who have no podcasting experience. The shame. Um, Actually, no. So, it is a long-time plan of mine where I do want to either write a novel or a series of short stories or do a podcast about adventures in tax and they're funnier than you can imagine because you know I've dealt with everything from murder to brain cancer to fake brain cancer to evil ex-wives to you know global conspiracies so I reckon it'd be not sharing any names but I think it'd be really great to actually everything would be anonymized it'd have to be anonymized yeah yeah, anonymizer but then you know if you say something you know this particular global organization dodge dodge tax for xyz years people are just going to google it and you're going to find out who it is that's fine but you have plausible deniability (laughs) well it's anonymized from my perspective but um no I would genuinely love to do one where it's kind of like a tax 101 mixed with an interesting story about how you learned about this tax 101 like how did Whistler become the coolest uh, tax haven if you wanted to dodge tax all around the world aside from being a great ski resort but how did Whistler become the place to retire to you know that type of stuff I I really want to do something like that I feel like we're covering a lot of demos I'm going to copyright that idea right here right now if anyone wants to throw money at us to make all these podcasts possible yeah get in touch Okay, look, that's been a, it's been a long episode. We've, we've made a lot of content for you guys today, but that takes us to our recommendation section. Uh, and this is where we recommend things that we like that may not be pen or paper related. Tev, you touched on yours before, so I want, uh, I want to kick it off with you. Well, um, I was actually originally going to uh, recommend another podcast, a medical history podcast called Sawbones, but you should, you should definitely check that out. But... I decided not to mid-episode because I I remembered about food. And so um, I am the grandson of Holocaust survivors on one side of my family. And a woman named Iris Makler decided to, well, originally I think it was pitched as an SBS program where she spoke to Holocaust survivors and their grandchildren. And it was talking about sharing time and, and 
culture with their grandchildren via cooking. So it turned out that I think somehow the TV deal fell through and it was turned into a cookbook instead, a recipe book that also told the stories of these Holocaust survivors and of their families. And it gave the recipes of these people, men and women, that they shared with their grandchildren. And my grandmother's recipe, I think there's actually two recipes of hers in there. One of them is def- is kugel, and I think another one is something called creme gelish. And it's, they're both sweet recipes. They're both um, absolutely delicious. And they also have like things like gluten-free recipes and vegan recipes in there as well. So um, it talks about how they've modernized these recipes too for their, for their millennial grandchildren. So this, this book is called Just Add Love. And it's available from, I think, most bookshops. I think Angus, Angus Robertson has it. Yeah, so check that out. If you, if you want some new recipes that taste exactly like what a grandmother would make, uh, check out Just Add Love. And you can, see, you can see me in there. I'm in there in a flamboyant pink shirt with my grandma and my grandpa. It's a pretty touching moment, I think. All right. Sharon, what would you like to recommend? You got something in your hand at the moment? Yeah, I do. Um, so it must have been a couple of weeks ago, Chris from Art by Chris McKee reached out to me and asked whether or not um, I would like a portrait of Sebastian done. So he's an artist based in Melbourne trying to start up a part-time uh, pet portrait business and um, knew that, you know, I had a bit of a, I have a fur baby and um, very kindly offered to do a portrait of him and asked whether or not, you know, it was something that I'd be interested in. And me being the obsessive dog mother that I am, I said yes. So Chris does uh, all of his artwork using a Platinum 3776 Ultra Extra Fine pen and um, did a portrait of Sebastian, which is just, it's amazing. Um It's very lifelike. It's very lifelike. Every single stroke. He's managed to capture Sebastian's fur. And like Seb's pretty fuzzy. He's a very, very fuzzy dog. But um, Chris has managed... Seb is a papillon. He is a papillon and is extra fluffy. And Chris has managed to capture every single one of his little hairs in so much detail. It's absolutely amazing. Um, So I was very fortunate to actually get an A4 portrait of Sebastian, which I will get framed at some point, along with a whole bunch of other things that I needed to get framed. But um, this is is genuinely, it blows my mind, takes my breath away. So Art by Chris McKee on... Instagram and Facebook, we can reach out to him. I think he may have a bit of a waiting list now, um, but he specialises in pet portraits. And, yeah, this love. There you go. I'm going to just quickly recommend uh, the people podcasting in the room will know that I'm wearing a ridiculous jacket uh, that I let love. Me des- let me describe said jacket. Chuck looks like he skinned a baby lamb or he skinned lemon. That's actually when someone asked me about it yesterday, I said that's what happened. He looks like he collected about three years worth of lemons, shed Maltese poodle fur and glued it onto a like a cropped fur jacket. Yeah, I look like the flamboyant bad guy that gets killed in a Yakuza movie. Uh, And I'm okay with this. You remind me of um, Mugatu. (laughs) Mugatu. <laughs> um, so the this is actually one of uh, Aaron's sleepwear items. It is from a brand uh, called Papignol, uh, P-A-P-I-N-E-L-L-E. 
at time of recording, they're having an 80% off sale at their factory in Paddington in Sydney. I'm not sure if that'll be existing when we release this pod. Look, it's sleepwear that I was comfortable wearing out of the house. Not everyone might be, but I was. Um, and I think that, guys, we, we tend to just sleep in track pants and a t-shirt. Uh, and you could really learn a lot from your girlfriends in terms of comfort. Uh, I'm very comfortable today. Uh, and I'm going to recommend uh, that company. We're going to have to take a photo of you in that jacket. I th- I will. Mm-hmm. I will. Or, or link to you. I think you have a photo of it on your Instagram. It'll be yeah. in... It's what I've laid our pens on for this episode. <laughs> to give you a sense of the texture. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm going to recommend a... Artist. So a couple of episodes ago, I was talking to Laura about the show Good Omens, which is based on the novel by Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman. Erin um, has is two pages from finishing it. Has she seen the TV show yet? No, we wanted to, ah, we wanted to okay. read it before watching Before we watch it together. Yeah. Well, the show is a lot of fun. So Good Omens is a book that's at least, I think, 20 years old. And so the fandom is old, old, old. A lot of history. It is the joining of two fandoms. Yes, Which is exactly. Neil Gaiman and Terry, and Terry Pratchett. Pratchett. Yes. And, and now I have there's a signed copy. And now, oh, so do I. <laughs> and now you have like old book fandom meeting TV fandom. And what I love about the new TV fandom is so um, Aziraphale and uh, no Aziraphale and Curly are played um, respectively by Michael Sheen and David Tennant, one of the former Doctor Who's, and they have. Just If you just look at them, Michael Sheen is kind of shorter and a slightly rotund, soft. And David Tennant is like lanky, very tall, like six foot three or something and moves in this like slinky way. And the physical comedy of them next to each other is fodder for so much excellent fan art. Like they have this weird Abbott and Costello routine and just the physical contrast is so funny. So my recommendation is this artist called at ravioli underscore daddy. And <laughs> I know the one. Oh, you do? do Isn't that amazing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and recently, well, she's, she's a great artist. Oh, they, I, I'm not sure of their gender. Uh, they are a great artist. And recently they've been doing incredible Good Omens fan art. And particularly the way they draw Aziraphale, I just, it's so endearing. I just want to cuddle him. Like, give it to me in a plush, you know, toy. And I would give it to Lance and Lance would love it. It's just really, really, really lovable. <laughs> so that's my rec. Oh, Aziraphale was like my one true, what is it, fictional character love. I wanted to be Aziraphale when I grew up. You know, I wanted to own my own bookshop and never sell a single book from it because I was so attached to every single book. And I wanted to have this grumpy snake-like friend called Crowley, but... Well, I mean, my name's not Crowley, but... Uh, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> close but no dice look thank everybody for joining us it's been a long episode but um we really wanted to answer all of your questions we wanted to share a lot with you because we don't always share personal details even even this episode when we were pressed about what we did uh we were all quite light on detail uh but thank you everyone for joining us thank you tav for being with us today Thank you very much for having me. It's been great. Uh, thank you, Sharon, for lending us your living space once again. More than welcome. Thanks for coming, everyone. Uh, thank you once again, Diana. Thank you so much, Chuck. Uh, as always, listeners, my name is Chuck. Uh, until next time, ink well. 
Past and future episodes of this podcast can be found at thenibsection.com and wherever you listen to podcasts. Hop onto iTunes, rate us, review us, and recommend us to your friends. Want to share your thoughts, suggestions, feedback? We'd love to hear from you. Email us at thenibsection at gmail.com. You can also comment at us on the Nib Section Facebook page or at the Nib Section on Twitter and Instagram. The Nib Section is the official podcast of Fountain Pens Oceania. Our producers this episode were Chuck Montano, Sharon Zah, Diana Dai. Recording and editing was done by Diana Zai. Our music was composed by Michael Pierce. Our logo was designed by Will H. Smith with artwork by Melissa Graff. Thanks for listening. Thank you.